Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 201, the Soundgarden Ultra Mega OK LP. As I said last week, this is one of SST's heaviest bands. Also might be the most well-known band on SST, I was thinking. We get to cover two SST releases by Soundgarden on the show. The Ultra Mega OK LP is our first but to help us dive into this excellent, trippy, and heavy record, we have a special guest. You bet. We've got Kim Thiel on the show. Wow. It's a great interview, obviously, mm-hmm. with tons of great info. But I have to admit, when I was listening to the interview, the, one of the coolest things for me is how well-versed Kim is in underground punk, <laughs> post-punk, hardcore music. I'm not surprised. Like yeah. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm not surprised at all. It's just so cool to hear Kim name check you know big boys part-time christians brand that's exactly what i was gonna say you know it's fun to listen to him rattle off these bands you know when he's talking about austin for example and he'll say big boys the dicks but then he'll throw in part-time christians you know (laughs) yeah i'm like oh okay i i knew kim knew this stuff but that's some serious street cred or like Picking out Wire's 154 album, for me, that's yep. that's incredibly impressive. So just a real treat that Kim's along to help make this great record by a great band even better to go through this week. Yep. But first, if I'm not mistaken, Brent, this week for our spiels, we've got an edition of the Mojack Mailbag. Yeah, some people sent us some stuff, records. Yeah, that's awesome. So we're gonna and, sp- and a zine. i got to talk about the zine, too. Yeah. All right, well, let's get to spieling. Uh, the first one I wanted to mention actually was a bonus thrown in by the guys at Captured Tracks. Yep. I ordered that excellent strum and thrum comp, and they threw in a record, one for each of us, by this band called Oxes, O-X-Z, or Z. It's an all-girl group from Osaka, Japan, from the 80s, and it collects their entire catalog plus some unreleased demos. It's weird, moody, new wave, post-punk, angular, kind of got like B-52s type vocals. Very cool. Yep, that would be our podcast pal David Martin who sent that over. Like you mentioned, it's subtitled 1981 to 89. Kansai, Japan, I believe is where they're from. Great liner notes and band history by Kato David Hawkins. Photos, gig posters, a discography really unheard of for the there to be an all-female underground band in japan at that time so hugely hugely influential for that reason alone but you know then there's the music they were around for eight years so the sound evolved a bit um but it's dark with a definite post-punk influence the vocals are really great i i kind of heard joan jett in some of the vocals yeah I hear that too. Yeah, really good. So thanks to David for hipping us to that. And it's been a while since I checked out the Captured Tracks website. Mm -hmm. And you know what else is out? What? That Mouth Congress album. Oh yeah, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, so that's (laughs) Paul Bellini and Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall, but it's like their their post-punk band. Yeah, I saw that in a record store last week. Waiting for Henry, double LP. I'm going to check that one out next for sure. Yeah. Um, All right, moving on. We mentioned this during, I think, the uh, the 2021 roundup because one of these was put out last year, but it deserves a bit more of a mention. We got a couple of discs from Charles K. Noyes, Brent. Yeah. One of them is uh, Charles and Elliot Sharp 
CD called Besotted. And it's on the tree, obviously. Uh, 2021 Zor music. It's ambient, avant-garde. I will say, though, that when I was listening to it, it's not even clear to me that there is a single guitar on it <laughs> at, at all, right? Yeah, yeah totally. That's how it, avant-garde it is. Yeah, yeah. it's far out. I, I'm, I will say, I mean, I was kind of hoping for a beat now and then, uh, but it's an interesting listen. If you want something far out there by Charles and Elliot, look no further. And Charles also sent us another disc, his Crimes in High Places, part one. Also on Zor, it's a sparse ambient type of CD. Totally now getting kind of the vibe from Charles on this Besotted and Crimes in High Places discs. Interesting to check out. Yeah, that's kind of what he's doing now that he doesn't drum anymore. Mm -hmm. Next, then, also on the tree, is this cool record by Tom Watson, which I had no idea was out there. It's called Country and Watson. Tom, of course, from Slovenly, Mike Watton and the Missing Men, Danny and the Doorknobs, so also on the tree. This is a re-release of the 2000 Liter Wagen release. It's a 2001 Theologian Records version. It's a, a mellow, laid-back affair, kind of electronic, lo-fi, experimental roots country with uh, Lynn Johnston, Bob Mothersbaugh, Jim O'Rourke. It's a cool listen. This this is one of my faves this week, for sure. Yeah, Mark Theodore from Theologian Records sent us that California label. Wasn't super familiar with them, but I maybe even have some stuff by them. But, you know, they have stuff or had stuff. I don't think they're active anymore. But no. Like Pennywise, Dwarves, No yep. Fun at All, Down by Law, FYP. Definitely tends towards those kinds of bands. And then and then there's this, this weird gem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, Theologian's definitely known for that west coast punk type of output for sure before i get into the next label that sent us stuff brant i I do want to talk about this zine that was sent to us by badger yeah i think that was more for your educational purposes (laughs) than mine (laughs) so okay what what does he say in the in the note that he he attached there i'll I'll get there i'll get there Okay. okay so anyways you know i love a good zine yeah And this is a good zine. And let me tell you why. This is called The History of Heavy Metal, Volume 1, Heavy Rock and Early Metal. Uh, It's by a guy named Badger from New Jersey. And actually, since he sent it to us, you can now go to Heavy Metal Handbook at Bandcamp.com and order this zine. And it's The History of Heavy Metal, Volume 1. He mentions... In here that there are going to be Volume 2, Noabum and Beyond, and Volume 3, The Golden Age of Thrash. These are forthcoming editions, but this one is The History of Heavy Metal. It's cool. It covers, you know, obviously bands like Steppenwolf, Blue Cheer, that late 60s into the early 80s type of scene, and all the ones that you you know all about, like, you know, of course... Uh, Zeppelin, Sabbath, etc. But it also covers a bunch of bands that I had no idea existed. You probably knew about them, Brant, like High Tide, Coven, Toad, Truth and Janie, Black Widow. These are all brand spanking new to me, to be honest. Um, But yeah, Badger did put in a note in here. And and here's what Badger said. Uh, To Brant, I hope this tome of arcane knowledge contains at least something you don't already know. And to Ryan, pinch harmonics, 
forever. <laughs> Ob- obviously, you know, giving me the gears because I'm not much into pinched harmonics. Um, <laughs> with the with the exception of Danzig, uh, but I will. I'm going to make a bold statement though. When I listen to just tons and tons of Soundgarden and and that type of music this week, okay, I'm going to make a bold statement. The bands covered in the history of heavy metal volume one this zine those bands very influential to the bands that are on a comp that we're going to get to called the deep six comp Um, every band on deep six and fans of the deep six comp should check out this zine you will not be disappointed well and a lot of the people that we've interviewed too Big Sabbath fans, Blue Cheer, BOC, all those bands. Hawkwind, yeah. you know. Yeah. I will say, like, I didn't know a ton of bands in there. My favorite band that I discovered, Toad Brand. <laughs> Do you know Toad? I know who they are. Yeah. 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 I didn't I didn't mind that actually, you know. I don't know. I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it's like metal, metal, not the metal that I dislike. It's more just, you know, kind of hard rock. So he and get, I like he gets it right. He he mentions all these, you know proto-metal bands, but then he dials in on Sabbath, Priest, and Motorhead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, it starts at, like, Link Ray. Yeah. And then it goes up to the No Album stuff. So it's it's a good, great little zine. Check it out. Yeah. Okay, Brent, the next spiel, though, from the Mojack mailbag relates to Wharfcat Records. Yeah, I'll just tee you up here, Ryan. Uh, Trip Warner from Wharfcat Records, based out of Greenpoint, Brooklyn, sent us an amazing package. He told me, my brother and I grew up on SST and absolutely love your podcast. We are friends with David Martin, who lives down the street from me. Uh, David Martin, who we just mentioned from Capture Tracks. Capture Tracks, yeah. We DJ together occasionally and always talk about the latest episode of the show. Sweet. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I love that. But man, I will say, this is one of the best packages we've ever received. Yeah. Totally like hand, like hands down. There was a uh, mind blow after mind blow listening to this. I'm not going to say that like I'll be a lifelong fan of all the stuff that came, but it was except for Bush Tetris, who you'll mention. Everyone that I listened to as a result of this package was brand new to me, which is awesome. Yeah, well, spiel it. So the first one I'll mention is this band called Palberta. Their new record, Palberta 5000. It's a follow up to 2018's Roach Going Down. This is more of a a pop album, I guess, with some more singable, catchy songs, but still really unique, unexpected compositions, quirky tunes, and it's like their seventh full length, and I've never heard of them. Um, But it was a cool uh, listen, and uh, interesting to to have this as part of the Mojack mailbag, as well as Oxes. We got two all-female bands. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, they've been around for a while. That's, I think, their newest from last year. I've yep. definitely seen their name around, but I've never heard them. Super interesting band. It's angular, noisy at times. It's discordant, but also very melodic, especially vocally. Yeah. Like they're doing really great, you know, vocal harmonies that really work well over top of some pretty jagged indie rock. Yeah. When I was reading up on this album, it sounds like it was a bit of an intentional move to have a bit more melody when you compare it against or listen against their previous releases. So very cool. Sounds like something you'd hear on Discord. Yeah. All right, next up was uh, one of the most interesting listens and one of the ones that I dug the most, for sure. 2020's Horse album by the band Holy Motors from Estonia, Brandt. 
from mm-hmm. Estonia. They're described on their band camp as a twangy reverb band from a non-existent movie. This is their second album. Their first is also on Wharfcat, Slow Sundown from 2018. When I listen to this record, it's got a, a definite kind of Western country vibe. When I listen to it, it's hard for me not to think of the Sadies or Cowboy Junkies. There's another band in Canada called Fiverr that these guys, they would be great on the bill with a band called Fiverr. But it's a it's a excellent, moody, soundscape, alt-country, western type of record. Very cool and very unexpected. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about this before on the show. I, I'm fortunate that I can listen to music at my day job all day. So I listen to a ton of music and I like to listen in stages. So I like to start off with something pretty mellow especially first thing Monday morning. And that's when I listen to this and it just, you know, perfect. It, hey, it, it hit the spot. It's got, like you said, a Western feel, but it's also shoegazy. Like it reminds me a bit of Miami era gun club or even, yeah. Uh, this, this guy Orville Peck, do you know him? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I know exactly what you're getting at. And yeah. you're right. You're right. It reminded me of that wicked blood on the saddle song, endless highway. Mm. Remember? I remember. Cool reference. Yeah. Hey, have you checked out that new gun club box set? Just looked at it online. Ah, yeah. I got mine in the mail. It's good. Nice. All right. Ready to move on? Yep. Profilgate. So here's the next release I had no idea existed. Profilgate. The record is called Too Numb to Know from 2020. This is the fifth album by uh, Noah Anthony, kind of a solo project. Uh, this guy's from Philadelphia. It's electro moody synth post punk, electro dance. Sometimes it reminds me of this band I dig called Jessica 93, but this one's way more electro vibes. This is a record that uh, myself and my kids were digging. My kids really love 80s sounds. Mm-hmm. They love that band Zombie yeah. uh, that you that you turned me on to with all the Moog synths and stuff. And they were digging this Profilgate. And it's a great one that like, you know, some dude in his 40s like myself and then, you know, my 10 and 12 year old both like it. Because it's got just amazing synths, it's dancey, it's cool. It almost sounds like Kraftwerk or something. Like, it's pretty sparse. Yeah. And it's very well recorded. The next one then, and again, like, it was a huge package. We're not done yet. We're halfway (laughs) done. Um, Public Practice is the next band. From Brooklyn, this is uh, an album called Gentle Grip from 2020, their debut album. Post-punk, it's described as no-wave-tinged dark disco. Perfect description. I love the musicianship on this. Uh, The song Cities, there's this awesome uh, bass riff that's all kind of done in harmonics on the bass. Just love that. It kind of in a really weird way. Uh, I know this band is from Brooklyn, and it, it doesn't remind me of Portland. But it kind of, like, in a really weird way, I'm lis- I'm rewatching that TV show, Portlandia. Mm. This would be like a band that Fred and Carrie would make. That's kind of, <laughs> it sounds like Fred and Carrie's band, yeah, Public Practice. And it was very, very cool. Yeah, I loved it. It was my favorite thing uh, that, that they sent us. I'll totally be tracking down some of the other stuff. Like, uh, you know, uh, they have another band, a couple of the members called Wall, who have an mm-hmm. album on Wharfcat called Untitled. Also very no-wave you know, even more of a post-punk influence Hmm. on that one. I just really like this. It's noisy. It has some, like, suicide vibes to it. The vocals, Sam York's vocals are just killer. She sometimes does that half-sung, half-spoken thing that Kim Kim Gordon, you know, made famous. 
Oh yeah, what's that band that was in your recommends from 2021 again? Who had um, they're from the UK? Dry cleaning. Yes, yeah. that's the one. Kind of kind of had similar types of vocals now and then. I agree. Yep. Is are dry cleaning from the UK or Australia? I think they're from the UK. Yeah, I but don't so. quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of top five brand quotes, I think. I already know what one of them is for the next 100 episodes. Can you guess what it is? Uh, no. The Shire. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyways, uh, here's the, the next one in the Mojack mailbag from Wharfcat. Bambara or Bambara. The record is Stray. It's the fifth album from this Brooklyn band. Again, similar type of vibes to kind of public practice and profligate in a way in that there's like a post-punk synths vibe here definitely kind of getting a bit of a wharf cat record sound almost for me um, which is very cool Uh, it's good i liked it it also had a bit of a nick cave vocals from time to time for me that i was just digging yeah i wrote the same thing uh Nick Cave vocals? Yeah. It's yeah. Kind of, they're kind of gothy in a way. Yeah. You know, like, I, I'm pretty sure I've spieled about this band before. They're one that I knew. I knew this band already. They're cool. Okay. Yeah, right on. And then we got this cool split single. Love that. It's a split between these two bands, Endless Boogie and Weak Signal. Endless Boogie, I didn't know existed, but it turns out after looking at into them a bit more, I kind of did. Yeah. Um, they actually have an episode on that Amoeba Records "What's in My Bag" that I had watched. Yeah, I had no I, <laughs> I had no idea that this was like you know one of the guys from Endless Boogie. Anyways, they've been around forever. Kind of seems like a bit of a like a like a super group slash rotating lineup, perhaps of like these uh, garage rockers. Anyways, um, this is definitely one of the their, their track Jerome, probably one of the most straight ahead rockers that uh, I listened to this week from Wharf Cat. And then uh, you flip it over. My favorite track of all of the listens this week mm. is uh, the song Rolex by this band Weak Signal that I need to find out more about. New York, indie rock, definitely love this track. And uh, I, I just, I have to admit, Wharf Cat has got a bunch of stuff out there that I had no idea about. And uh, I got to dig deeper. Yeah, same. Uh, Weak Signal definitely grabbed me. Uh, at least this song, kind of a lo-fi indie rock band from New York. Uh, I'll be digging into more of their stuff. Endless Boogie is another band I already already know and have a few records by. They've been around since the 90s. Pretty strong core lineup, but some people come and go, uh, like Stephen Malkmus and Matt Sweeney's on this one. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of vocalist, guitarist. Paul, top dollar major, uh, is pretty well known in record collecting circles mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. like you know, a record collector's record collector. I was going to yeah. mention that. I've watched his What's in My Bag a few times. I was going to recommend that to you. So I'm glad you watched it. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. There's a lot of like mediocre ones. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay, Ryan. And then as you mentioned, uh, they were so generous. They actually sent us this amazing box set, Rhythm and Paranoia, the best of Bush Tetras, which came out last year. It's th- three LPs, a super great package and exhaustive uh, booklet with tons of pics, some phenomenal photos, write-ups by Thurston Moore, Topper Hedden, uh, yeah. who produced the band's Things That Go Boom in the Night EP, and Magnuson of Bongwater, Hugo Burnham of Gang of Four, a bunch of others do write-ups. Uh, I, I was kind of a casual fan of Bush Tetras, but this is making me, you know, 
want to be a bigger fan, especially the newer stuff that this, so this is a comp, right? And it, yeah, there is a highlight on the third LP on some of the newer stuff. And it's just as good as the, the classic stuff from the eighties fans for sure of any of those artists I just mentioned would totally eat this up. Just New York, no wave post-punk of the highest order. Uh, I also this week stumbled across an episode of this uh, talk house podcast. Kind of what they do is put actors, filmmakers, musicians, authors together, like sometimes unlikely ones, sometimes not, and just record their conversations. There's one from November of last year, right when this came out with Thurston, Jim Jarmusch, and then Cynthia Slay and Pat Place from Bush Tetras. And it's really great. That, yeah. yeah. And as a, on a side note, Thurston mentions on that podcast, I believe he refers to it as a manuscript he's working on. It's a series of essays, I think he says, called Sonic Life. So maybe possibly a memoir of sorts. Oh, that'd be cool. He doesn't call, call it that, but so maybe I'm assuming too much, but yeah. Well, Bush Tetras is definitely one of the bands that you hear Mike Watt name drop a oh, bunch, yeah. too, as an influence on the Minutemen. You can definitely you, see that. Yeah, so big thanks to everyone for sending us stuff, of course. We we don't ask for it. It's completely unexpected, but also totally appreciated. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, like, anybody who listens to this show has probably figured out by now that you and I both have a insatiable appetite for you know, new bands discover, you know, the thrill of discovery. Yeah. Oh yeah. Divine intervention. Yeah. And I, we got like some sweet packages that did just that. So it's hugely appreciated. Yeah. I just made a Sebado ref reference, Ryan, and you, you just, what, it, what right was past it? it? What was it? I said the thrill of discovery and it made me think of a Sebado song, which, and then I said divine intervention. Oh, okay. Well, nice move. Nice okay. move. Street cred, <laughs> street cred. With that, Brent, uh, are you in a mood for trouble? Yeah. History lesson, part one. Okay, so cool to get into Soundgarden. I have to admit that it's like a bit different for me to go through Soundgarden and their releases this week because, again, they're so well-known and so well-documented, which is very unusual when you compare it against, you know, last week's episode, Paper Bag. Yeah. Like... This is a different stratosphere altogether, but not different to me in terms of how much I love this music and how meaningful it is to me. Um, and we'll get to that as we uh, gear up for the interview here. Now, because Soundgarden are one of the most well-known bands, they're also one of the most well-documented bands. And there's a ton of references, not all of which you know I'll, I'll mention as we go through our history lesson here, but I just want to mention just a fraction of some of the stuff I was looking into this week just to gear up for the episode. So there is, of course, with respect to DVDs, my, my two go-tos when I'm going anywhere near this type of stuff, uh, first of all, is the hype movie, but especially the Blu-ray edition, the, uh, the 20 years later commentary. And there's some great commentary from Kim, Steve Fisk, and the band's longtime manager, Susan Silver. The other place that I go, which also has interviews from Kim, is the amazing Metal Evolution documentary series and the Seattle episode where they ask the question, is grunge metal? Well, that's a great episode and everyone should check that out. But then, of course, we got to get into some bookage, okay? Some literature. Now, all of these are of kind of varying quality and utility in this episode. And I'm only mentioning some, but here we go. 
the first one for me is the book Loser, the real Seattle music story by Clark Humphrey. That's a go-to for me. The Sub Pop, Subterranean Pop Music Anthology, 1980 to 88 by Bruce Pavitt, who will come up during the history lesson. Uh, the excellent Taking Punk to the Masses from Nowhere to Nevermind book. I've mentioned this before. This is that main book that you pick up when you go to the Museum of Pop Culture or Mopop in Seattle, Jacob McMurray. It's a great book. Tons of interviews, history, and amazing photos. Uh, next is The Everybody Loves Our Town, an oral history of grunge by Mark Yarm. Not Mark Arm, Mark Yarm. And then a couple of books by Greg Prado, of course, Grunge is Dead, and then Dark, Black, and Blue, The Soundgarden Story. The Strangest Tribe book by Stephen Toe, The Accidental Revolution book by Kyle Anderson, Grunge Seattle by Justin Henderson, Our Band Could Be Your Life by Michael Azarand, uh, also the Chris Cornell biography, Total Fucking Godhand by Corbin Reef. And then, of course, there are some great Charles Peterson photo books that everyone should check out. They're just amazing. Really, again, part of defining that aesthetic. Very much a part of the early look of Soundgarden as well. And as, as I said, all of these are of varying quality. For my money, though, the Loser, Sub Pop, and Taking Punk to the Masses books are the best ones. Like if you want to get into this stuff with some high quality history, go there. And now let's talk about Soundgarden themselves. Guitarist Kim Thile and bassist Hiro Yamamoto started playing music in high school in Park Forest, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Kim actually played in a punk band with Bruce Pavitt's younger brother, John, called Identity Crisis. And, and you know, Brent, like you'll get into some of this in the interview, but just at a high level, we want to get us up to ultra mega OK. Mm -hmm. Both Hiro and Kim moved to Olympia, Washington in 1981 to go to Evergreen State College. And here's what Kim said about that in Taking Punk to the Masses. I was interested in coming to Evergreen State College. The music I was interested in at the time was very similar to what was going on there. And what was going on in Olympia was very exciting. As far as the Lost Music Network, Chaos Radio, Sub Pop Magazine, and Op Magazine. I was aware of some of the bands there like John Foster's Pop Philosophers, the Beakers, the Max, and of course, the Blackouts from Seattle. And so I think that was part of the interest. Part was music, part was education, and it was far away from Chicago. I figured there was probably better musical opportunities as well because it was a smaller town that was actively involved in that aspect of independent punk culture, whereas Chicago at the time was a lot of bar bands and blues. Once they landed, Hero started playing in a band with Chris, a cover band called The Shimps. When Hero left, Kim was recruited on bass, and when The Shimps broke up, Chris, Hero, and Kim started jamming and in 1984 formed Soundgarden, taking its name from a sculpture called A Soundgarden by Douglas Hollis and built from 1982 to 1983. It's one of six sculptures on the National Oceanic an atmospheric administration campus on the shore of Lake Washington. This is a sound producing sculpture where there are 12 21 foot high steel tower structures with wind channeling pipes that make this eerie and cool sound when wind blows through it. You can actually take a virtual tour. You can go to YouTube and kind of go through the sound garden and hear it. It's pretty cool. 
in Soundgarden, Chris Cornell originally started out on drums, but they eventually got a drummer named Scott Sundquist so Chris could move out front as vocalist. Scott's in the band from 85 to 86. They first have a recording on the Pyrrhic Victory comp tape on CZ. That's actually CZ's first release, and it's the song Incessant Mace from 1986. Now, Brent, here's a quick quiz for you. So that's CZ's first release, Pyrrhic Victory. It's a comp tape. Do you know another comp with the words Pyrrhic Victory in the title? Well, there's the CZ comp, another Pyrrhic Victory, which I believe we've talked about before on the show. Yeah, exactly. It comes out in 1989 on CZ, has Malfunction, Green River, 64 Spiders. So you got to check out both a Pyrrhic and another Pyrrhic Victory. But also in 1986, Soundgarden put out three tracks on another legendary comp called Deep Six on CZ Records. The tracks are Heretic, Tears to Forget, and All Your Lies. Now, the Deep Six comp is a seminal Seattle comp that, in hindsight, was really sending a message that there's something going on there in that scene. It's rooted in heavy guitar rock of the 60s and 70s and proto-metal, influenced by side two of My War, with some serious punk and post-punk aesthetics and DIY ethics. That's really, you know, that's the shot across the bow, the Deep Six comp. Yeah, for sure it is. There are tracks not just by Soundgarden, but also from Green River, Melvin's, Malfunction, U-Men, Skinyard. And Skinyard had future Soundgarden drummer Matt Cameron. In 1986, Sunquist quits and then Matt joins the band. And that's really, for my money, when Soundgarden really starts cooking. Matt's drumming is, for me, without question, some of the best drumming in the entire SST catalog. Oh, yeah, man. It's on full display on this release, too. Yeah. You know, you put Matt's drumming together with Hero's thrashy, groovy punk rock bass, Kim's inventive, technically proficient, yet really emotive and noisy guitar playing, and Chris's incredibly powerful and soulful vocals. Soulful, Brent, not operatic, soulful (laughs) vocals. You've got a good band, but then you throw in, like, you know, the unique songwriting, weird time signatures and tunings while still rocking really hard and rocking slow and low, then you've got a great band for my money. And it's no surprise that they started to get some real attention. Here's what uh, Michael Azarand said in Our Band Could Be Your Life. And this is about how Soundgarden got on Jonathan Poneman's radar. One night, Jonathan Poneman happened to catch a set by Soundgarden and was blown away. Here's Jonathan. I saw this band that was everything rock music should be, said Poneman. It was very immediate, very raw, very intense, and just completely brazen. There was no feeling of artiness or pretense. It was just in your face. Poneman offered to finance a record and the band accepted. But Kim Thiel thought Poneman should team up with Thiel's old buddy, Bruce Pavitt, who had a little experience with these things. So Thiel arranged a meeting between Pavitt and Poneman and they agreed to work together. That's the birth of Sub Pop, essentially. Despite the fact that Thyle was a dear friend, Pavitt was not very sanguine about Soundgarden. But as Pavitt put it, the fact that Jonathan was offering to throw 20 grand into the pot kind of sweetened the deal. In July 87, Sub Pop released the Hunted Down Nothing to Say 7-inch and Soundgarden's Screaming Life EP followed in October of that year, this time financed essentially by Poneman. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, I'm sure this is well known and I probably knew this too and just had forgotten about it, but Soundgarden was really instrumental in helping create Sub Pop. Like it was a collaboration almost by that point. I'm pretty sure Soundgarden even financed the recording sessions on their own. Now, uh, recorded by Jack and Dino, at Reciprocal, Screaming Life also contains those two tracks off of their first single, Hunted Down and Nothing to Say. And this is interesting. I found this in the Sub Pop USA book. So this is uh, the collection of uh, all those writings from Bruce Pavitt, 1980 to 88. And this is from the April 1987 issue, Brent. Okay. This is what Bruce Pavitt had to say. Rumor has it that somebody from Slash Records will be checking out the Ultra Heavy Soundgarden, but their upcoming record will most likely be a six-song EP on Seattle's CZ label. Now, I think that that's probably the the Screaming Life EP. Hard to say, though. Um, But in in 1988, the band released the FOP EP, also on Sub Pop. And here we have Steve Fisk, pitching in uh, it was recorded at the moore theater and some of the mixing was done at velvetone in ellensburg there you go which we know from the, the trees right yep in 1988 with major labels courting them soundgarden actually signs to sst to put out the ultra mega okay lp while they are negotiating and here's mark pickerel from greg prado's book mark pickerel from screaming trees of course i was instrumental in getting soundgarden signed to sst they came out and played a show in Ellensburg in about 87. And the Screaming Tree sound man, Rob Doak, recorded the show on his soundboard and made me a tape of it. I was so impressed that I sent it to Greg Ginn. A couple of months later, SST signed them. I'm pretty sure Mark told that story when we had him on the show. And here's Jack and Dino from Greg Prado's book as well. Soundgarden may have been the first to actually get the deal. By the time of their second record, they were already talking with AM well before anyone else. Their third record came out on SST, and AM said, Why do you want to do this? And they said, We don't want our career to stop for a year while we're negotiating with you. So we're going to continue and release this other record on an indie label to have something out. Because most bands would start negotiating with a major label, and it would take six to eight months. Then they would record, and the label would sit on it for three or four months. And then a year goes by. Suddenly the band lost all its momentum. Soundgarden very cleverly said, we're going to release one more indie record. And then here's Kim in Greg Prado's other book, Dark Black and Blue. When it came to switching labels, it was an easy decision to make, explained Kim. I love the Sub Pop label, but we just couldn't make another record with them. They had no real distribution and very little money. And when our record went out of stock, they had no way of repressing it. We were talking to SST at the time, and they had St. Vitus, Screaming Trees, and Das Damen, who were all doing well, so it was an easy decision. They had the money and the distribution. Now, the name Ultra Mega OK means really super just fine, or, you know, really, really OK. It's, you know, it's just showing that sense of humor with the band. Unfortunately, though, the record, when it was recorded, it wasn't even Ultra Mega OK. To the band's ears yeah. unfortunately yeah. Um, it was recorded using the dogfish mobile studio with drew canalette engineering same guy who did black flags who's got the 10 and a half inch and now brent can you remind me again who's got the 10 and a half inch kira kira exactly attaboy 
Now, the band recorded in Newburgh, Oregon, and Seattle with this mobile studio, and it was mixed at Pace Studios. The band was suspicious when recording and mixing because it was obvious that what they heard on the floor is not exactly what they were hearing uh, when they were hearing the playback. And then eventually when it was released in October of 88, it was not at all what they had expected. The band unanimously agreed to remix it, and SST, to their credit, agreed as well. Greg was on board with wanting to hear it remixed. But unfortunately, the band got busy. But fortunately for us, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's from taking punk to the masses. By 1988, Soundgarden was becoming increasingly popular outside of Seattle. They had moved from Sub Pop to SST, which at the time was the pinnacle of indie achievement. In October 88, SST released the band's debut full-length, Ultra Mega OK, which raised their profile further. Soundgarden commenced on a U.S. tour, packing their equipment into their 1986 Chevy Beauville van. By the end of 1988, they signed to AM, the first grunge band to sign to a major label, and began recording Louder Than Love, which was released in September 1989. Now, what also happened, though, is Hero quit, and the band needed to find another four-string slinger. They got Jason Everman uh, from Nirvana for a bit to fill in, but eventually they found Ben Shepard from the bands March of Crimes, Mind Circus, and 600 School, Again, someone else with some solid punk rock pedigree to join Soundgarden. And notwithstanding the band's disappointment with the Sonics of Ultra Mega OK, it was actually nominated for a Grammy Best Metal Performance in 1990. Now, do you remember who they were up against, Brent? I remember I remember this all of this well. I so I was a huge Metallica fan, you know, in the you know, 1988 or 89. I don't remember when exactly it was, but I remember watching the Grammy Awards because back then... That was it. There was no... I didn't have music television of any sort. Yeah, that was it. So I'm watching this and I remember that I knew that they were doing the metal and hard rock category for the first time and that Metallica was nominated. So I was super pumped and I remember when they lost to Jethro Tull. I remember it. I was sitting on my floor... That was in the year before, the year before this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember being so mad and just, I had no idea who Jethro Tull was, but I could tell by looking at them when they came up to get their award that they weren't cool, you know? <laughs> 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 yeah, but the, the next year, uh, Metallica won, uh, but Dokken was also nominated. Now, obviously, I disagree with Chris on this because I, I love rocking with Dokken, but... <laughs> <laughs> he, he made some he made some comments, I believe, in the press about like, you know, why the hell is Dawkins in the best metal category? Also yeah. up that year was Queensryche. Yep, love Queensryche. Yeah, and also Faith No More for the real thing. Yeah, so that's a pretty good category, with the exception of Dawkins. Uh, Faith No More and and Queensryche. You had Faith No More, Metallica, Soundgarden, not too shabby, and Metallica. Wins. Hey, two two Seattle bands, Ryan. Queensryche's from Seattle. Yes, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm still not going to like Queensryche brand. Anyways, uh, that takes us up to the end of Ultra Mega OK. And we will see Soundgarden one more time on the show here with SST 231, the Flower EP. But of course, after Ultra Mega OK and Louder Than Love, there's way more. And I'm just going to hit the treetops here, Brent, as they say OK. okay. Um, in, in 1991, they released Bad Motorfinger, which is a landmark record and... That's when I heard Soundgarden for the first time. 
Matthew Price, who we called Rocky, and he's a total banger in high school, as we used to call him, was listening to Bad Motorfinger in Mr. Rappin's industrial arts class. And I walked in and I went, what is that? Yeah. I could tell that Rocky was kind of like, didn't didn't really want to like take the time to tell me about it. He's like, oh, they're just some rock band. And I was like, no, no, no. That sounds, that sounds like something. Yeah. That sounds like something. So I basically like watched much music to maybe like see them or hear them again. And when I did, I was like, okay, I like that. I have to get that Soundgarden, Bad Motor Finger, done deal. Because you would never hear that on the radio no. where I grew up. It was all... You know, like someone someone would have to play it on the on the boombox in industrial arts class, and that's when I heard it. Um, and then after they released Super Unknown in 1994, and I mean these records just keep getting better too. 1996, Down on the Upside. After which, though, they broke up in '97. Uh, Chris released a number of solo albums. He also formed the band Audio Slave with the guys from Rage Against the Machine. Uh, we should also mention too, of course, uh, Temple of the Dog with members of Pearl Jam and Matt Cameron was in the band. Uh, this is after Andrew Wood passed away. Uh, they formed the Temple of the Dog band. Kim also played during the hiatus in the No WTO combo, Brent. Do you know that one? Yep. Alternative Tentacles. Yeah. So that's that's Jello Biafra, Chris Novoselic from Nirvana, Gina Mainwell from Sweet 75, Chris's other band. And it's a really, really cool EP. It has everything Jello that I love about Jello on it. Kim does some really great, like Kim Thyle slash East Bay Ray isms on it. It's awesome. And Brent, they cover Full Metal Jackoff. Yeah. Which, of course, is off the amazing uh, DOA Jello album. Kim also contributed to Dave Grohl's Probot project. Matt ramped up his Wellwater Conspiracy project, which Ben and Kim also contributed to. Matt also joined Pearl Jam as a permanent member. He also plays, I didn't know this, Brent, but he also plays on Getty Lee's album, My Favorite Headache. Have you ever heard that? Hmm. I don't own that. I think I've heard some of it, but I'm not sure if I knew that. Yeah, Matt Cameron plays on Getty Lee's my favorite headache album. I had no idea. I must get that. Um, ben played on some Lanigan albums, and Ben and Matt also had the the Hater side project while Soundgarden was still going. And Hero, of course, we've mentioned a ton of times. Hero went on to play in that awesome band, Truly, and I'm still waiting for the re-releases. The Truly re-releases still haven't happened yet. Again, probably due to Adele. Right. But uh, <laughs> but you know. Finally, we'll get those truly re-releases this year. I hope so. In 2010, the band reunited. They released the Telephantasm retrospective and a new album of material, King Animal, in 2012. In 2014, they also released the Echo of Miles, three-CD box set with rarities, live material spanning their entire career. You should get both of those comps, Telephantasm and Echo of Miles. Um they started working on new material in 2015 and 16, but unfortunately in 2017, Chris passed away, effectively ending Soundgarden. Super tragic event. Um, at least we have the music, but I wish there was more. But at least we've got what we got, yeah. which has been really, really important to me. Uh, Soundgarden is one of those bands where, you know how we joke uh, over the years of doing the podcast, you know who you get to pick, the Beatles or the Stones. For me, growing up, in high school, in the early 90s, you kind of had to pick between like Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. 
Oh. Per- Pearl Jam was kind of like, you know, they didn't have as much street cred as Soundgarden. And if, and I was punk. And if I was going to like anything like that, the the one that had street cred was was kind of Soundgarden in my world. Now, I've since come to appreciate more about Pearl Jam, you know, as I've grown up. But Soundgarden sunk its hooks into me really early, and they've been there ever since. Yeah, same for me. One other thing I want to mention, Brent, the best Soundgarden contributed piece of music this year for me in 2022 so far. Can you guess what that is? Uh, Is it something Hero's doing? No. What is it? It's this, the new Melvin's EP, Lord of the Flies, Mm. where they cover the song Spoon Man, which has been part of off and on the Melvin's uh, set for the last few years or whatever. Um, But they cover Spoon Man and Matt Cameron and Dale do double drums on it. And it's killer. Yeah, I should have known that. I've watched it. There's a video for it. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely check that out. Um, And I sure hope we hear more from the Soundgarden guys soon. Hey, Ryan, I have this SST press kit here. I'm going to read you something from it. And this is kind of a repeat, but I assume this is the spaceman who wrote this. This is kind of the one page on this record. The Big Bang Theory is true, and it's happening now. Soundgarden creates a primeval pound. Their music simultaneously celebrates the illustrious past of riff-rampant heavy metal (laughs) while it delves into fertile ground with the beauty and power of Mount St. Helens erupting. Soundgarden's creations are both horrific and holy, shards of shattered greenhouse glass and unchecked, twisted goth. In some ways, Soundgarden is the ultimate American garage band. Their multi-ethnic lineup, Kim is East Indian and hero of Japanese descent, in addition to their coming together from remote parts of the country, make them a real heavy smelting pot. As Kim explains, we're all from the same culture, just different origins. And this mixture of origins mel- mm. melds together in, the, in their music as all four contribute compositions to the band. And then it says... Their SST debut, Ultramega OK, features their fiercest material yet, with metal hook-laden songs like Flower and their cover of Smokestack Lightning. The clouds truly part on Beyond the Wheel, however, which Mm. builds from an ominous rumble to an in-yo-face stomp, with Chris's ferocious (laughs) wail careening around and above it all. And does it hold up in person? Soundgarden's amazing live performances have been repeatedly described in three simple words. Total fucking godhead. There you go. Nice. Yeah. What a band, hey? The musicianship? Amazing. I bet they're the only SST band that was nominated for a Grammy. Might be. Maybe Sonic Youth or maybe Maybe. like Bob Mould or something. Maybe. For sure the only actual release that came out on SST, I bet. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. But yeah, what a great band, hey? You know, I mentioned now and then, you know, what's the secret sauce in a band? Yeah. You know you know what the secret sauce for me sometimes when I listen to Soundgarden is? Guess oh. what guess what it is? I don't know, the guitar riffs mixed with Chris's insane vocals. No man. Matt Cameron's hi hat. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Every now and then it just goes like that and I'm just like, <laughs> Oh yeah. That is so deadly. Yeah. And he's one of those drummers too that you know, his left foot is doing the quarter notes on the hi hat. So and whenever you see a drummer that does that, it's like, Oh, that's a good drummer, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's throw it over to Kim. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Kim Thale. Kim, thanks for being on the show. Well, you're welcome, Brett. Thanks for having me. 
All right, so I want to talk about Ultra Mega OK, but before we get that get to that, I want to go back away. So if I have this right, you were born in Seattle, but you grew up in Park Forest, Illinois. Yes, that's true. And Park Forest is near Chicago? Yeah, it's about 35 miles south. Uh, the southern end of Cook County, which is the county Chicago's in. Uh, what first sparked your interest in playing guitar? Probably just listening to the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Maybe liking George Harrison when I was a kid. I think, I'm sure a lot of young people probably wish they could play guitar or piano or something, but taking those steps to learn it or convincing your folks to buy you a guitar or or putting in the work of taking lessons is all kind of a one of those impediments to actually learning it. Yeah. Did so you... I just skipped all that. I, I didn't, I never took lessons as taught myself. Yeah. By playing along to records. Yeah. Or yeah. just getting a little chord book and learning the chords, watching people play. What was kind of your first band, your first real band? The first band I got into or the first band I played with? First, your first band that you played in? It was a band called Bozo the Pinhead. <laughs> the band I started when I was 17. So that would have been, it would have been 76, 77. Mm-hmm. It, I started it after getting the Ramones Leave Home album and the Sex Pistols were breaking and getting a lot of attention on news and tabloid news, you know, yep. news magazine shows. I don't, I don't recall which news magazine shows were popular in the late 70s, but something like a 60 Minutes or 2020. Yeah. They're doing stories about this outrageous band. But I love the music, you know, with power chords and loud and aggressive. And I was really into the Ramones. And before that, of course, before punk rock, it was basically Kiss, Ted Nugent, Aerosmith. Yeah. Before that, you kind of have Zeppelin and Sabbath. So I liked the heavier guitar rock. Um, as a kid, I loved the Beatles. I didn't understand what sounds were the guitars and what sounds on the records were keyboards. My mom played piano and I would see a lot of electric keyboards on TV rock bands. So I just kind of assumed it was that. And I liked the Beatles and I thought there was one of them was a piano player. I I liked that song roundabout by yes, you know, Mm -hmm. and so I wanted to be an electric keyboard player, not a regular piano, but one of those cool electric ones with bright colors. Yeah. And eventually I learned that the the riffs I was listening to and the sounds I liked on records were made by the guitar. Mm-hmm. And so I switched over there. I started that band when I was, what, a senior year in high school, I think. I had written some songs back my junior year in high school when I was 16. And I got tried to get some guys together in this alternative program that I was in. It was kind of a, sort of a hippie adjunct high school sort of just kind of active participation in seminars, internships, things like that. And most of the guys that were in there were like into, uh, they're either into utopia and Roxy music and, uh, or they're into the grateful dead, Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, Nash. And they did not like my taste in either, um, heavy metal or punk rock. But they humored me because some of them played instruments. They said, yeah, let's, let's, let's do this band for a lark. 
we played at our school talent show, played a few parties, and I, I'm still in touch with these guys, except for one of them passed away, mm. and they all became punk rock guys. <laughs> I think they went from they went from not liking Devo and not liking the Sex Pistols to really liking Elvis Costello. I'm sorry, not liking Ramones and the Sex Pistols, but liking Devo and the Talking Heads and loving Elvis Costello. Yeah. And then eventually they came back around. They started liking things like you know, Husker Du and, and uh, you know, et cetera. So they're all punk rock guys now. I feel like Devo was that crossover band that just had that appeal. Oh, yeah. They were smart. They were witty. And uh, they, were, they were ironic. But you could also, they were also sincere. So yeah. you, could, you could, they could be the band you believe in or they could be the band you laugh at or the band you laugh with. Okay, so is Bozo and the Pinheads, did that evolve into Identity Crisis, or is that all different people? Identity Crisis is all different people. Um, there might have been some evolution in that those different people, they were, they were a year or two younger than me. Uh, a couple of them were involved in that same uh, alternative program, school, school program. They're smart kids. One of them was the younger, younger brother of Bruce Pavitt, John Pavitt. Um, I was good friends of the family. And those were the guys that formed Identity Crisis. But they were associated with some of the people in Bozo and the Pinheads. Um, I know John had played with some of the guys that were in Bozo and the Pinheads in another lineup. But uh, they had a separate band. I graduated and they were still finishing up school. And they had a band called the Decibels. Mm. And they had one guitar. They wanted a second guitar. They asked me to play with them. And then at some point, they kicked out the original guitarist who they thought was working. And uh, we just changed our name to Identity Crisis. And I started writing a lot of the songs. And we got a singer, um, a full-time singer. Because before the... The other bassist was the, the bassist. John was doing a lot of the vocals. So we had a full-time singer and he started writing a lot. They asked me to play and I started writing a lot. And it, we just changed our name to Identity Crisis. This is pre-hardcore, I'm assuming. Sounds like it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah. But oddly, it's still kind of post-punk, if you know what I mean. Yep. But <laughs> the idea of post-punk came about in the late 70s, early 80s with Bauhaus and Susie and the Banshees. Um, but yeah, it was pre-hardcore, which was like 81, 82, right? American hardcore. Yeah. So here's my question then. I don't know how you heard of Evergreen College. I'm assuming it's through your your school, because Evergreen is kind of, yeah. seems like an extension of what you're describing in your high school, maybe. The college, exactly. the college exactly. version of it, right? But I, I've heard you mention, I mean, yes. we, we've had like Steve Fisk on our show and, and Bob yep. Bierman. And, so like... I, we've talked about some of these bands, but I was surprised to hear that you knew like Three Swimmers, for example. How did you know that band? Well, Three Swimmers actually hadn't formed yet mm. until I moved to, probably right before I moved to Seattle. But, you know, we, our, our, group, of, our group of friends would check out new, new records. There was, there was a store in Chicago called Wax Tracks. Um, there, there was also a wax tracks in the Denver area. So they sold great used records and indie records. And every once in a while we take the, 
the uh, Illinois Central train from the south suburbs up to the city, take the subway or the L out to, um, I can't I think they call it the Uptown area, near the Biograph Theater, right next to the Biograph Theater where John Dillinger was shot, was a wax tracks record. And I think I bought Perubu Modern Dance there. I uh, probably got a B-52s single. Uh, probably the first, I found a copy of Freak Out by the Mothers of Invention for like two bucks. <laughs> it was a great shape. I think it was mislabeled. Um, just things like that. So we buy singles, you know, with whatever money we had. Uh, There's another store called Hegwich Records, which is huge. Uh, Hedgewich or Hegwish. Um, it was just had a huge floor space and people would go come from all around They'd come from, you know, 50 miles away just to go there and stock up on records, probably further. It was just, it was just a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so we keep, we turn each other on the records. We, we all played in bands. We, we, we all, we get together to jams, like check this out. It's this new clash record. Hey, have you heard of the slits? Have you heard of x-ray specs? Things like that. Now we had a bonus education from Bruce Pavitt, who was a little bit older than us, and he went away to college before we did. He was at a college called Blackburn in uh, southern Illinois, but he transferred over to Evergreen, I think his next second year, sophomore year, and he got involved with the Lost Music Network through Evergreen. You know, he was a DJ at Chaos Radio. Um, John Foster. There was, yeah, John John Foster. Uh, it is Pop Philosophers, and get associated with them and he met Calvin Johnson from K records to them. Uh, the beakers of Mark Smith and Frankie Sunsend, those guys, they all played around, uh, Steve, you know, Bruce became good friends with Steve is. And we got his first single anonymous. Yep. Bruce sent that back. And this is the guy I go to school with. It's like, we thought it was trippy. It was electronic and, um, it was a real single and a cool artwork. And he'd send back some Beaker singles and, and then some singles by a band from Seattle called The Blackouts. Um, I fell in love with this song called Make No Mistake by The Blackouts and uh, The Beaker's Red Towel. Just cool, cool stuff. I mean, he'd send back some 12-inch EPs and some copies of magazines. Like I think it was Op, which mm-hmm. split into two magazines, Sound Choice and Option. Yep. Or it was Option that split into Op and Sound Choice. And then Bruce started the Sub Pop fanzine, you know, yeah, and so he'd send us. He'd come back home for you know Christmas break or summer, bring some copies of the magazine, give me one, give some to his brothers, and I hung out with his brothers. They'd get a little care package with a bunch of singles in it or some EPs, and we'd listen to them and decide, you know, review them, decide which song we like best, which bands we like best. And the three swimmers kind of came out of the beakers. It was Mark Smith. I think it might have been a crossover between the Max and the Beakers. Some guys from the Max, some guys from the Beakers got together and formed the Three Swimmers. And I think I had an opportunity opportunity to see them when I moved to Seattle in late 1981. I think the Three Swimmers played some show and I got, mm-hmm. I got to check out. That, yeah. that answers the, my question. My, like I, I was confused. I thought <laughs> Bruce followed you out there. I didn't realize he had already been there. Yeah, he'd already been there. Um, um, he he was older, and he was a little bit more involved um, socially and culturally. I was a little bit more of a many of us. You know, I, I was I was a musician, so I was a little bit more of a distant viewer. I would I would play with other guitar players and drummers, but he was actively involved in in the idea of radio and 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 
journalism and magazines and networking with people. Not, I don't know, as a guitarist, I only network if you could see as far as talking to a drummer to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce, Bruce is skilled at that. Yeah. And, and he, and he just turns on the stuff that he was, you know, learning about. That was what, that's what he was good at. He would, he would write magazines and tell people, here's what's cool. Here's what's happening. And that's what, and that we were the beneficiaries of, of his, uh, investigations. <laughs> okay. So like, did you and Hero make, you know, were you making a pact? Like, let's move there and start a band. Was that the, was that the goal? It would kind of come up. I mean, we were out of school. We were what, 19, 20. We both had bands that were, that eventually broke up. And, and we also had girlfriends. I think his girlfriend had split with him and he's pretty bummed. He had briefly lived out in Olympia with, um, Stuart Halliman, who runs a few recording studios out here now. Mm-hmm. He's produced a number. If you recognize, you'll, you'll probably recognize the name if you were to research Stuart. Hallerman and Avast Studios. He's um, engineered and, and produced a number of records for Sub Pop, but he was out in Evergreen where he got his engineering degree and in, in recording engineering. And Hero went and stayed with him for a few months and came back to Park Forest. And we were kind of ready to move. His girlfriend left him. I had a girlfriend who went away to college. We kind of broke up. And so no girlfriends, no bands. Our bands fell apart. Yep. In like 1980, 81. So, well, 2000, you know, Seattle's 2,000 miles away. It's, it's nice and far away, and and it'll be an adventure, and we can start up stuff. I think I had some cousins who lived out here, aunts and uncles, so we thought, you know, Bruce is out here. We know Stuart's out here. Let's head out there. Yeah. Fast-forwarding a bit, you mentioned the move to Seattle, and uh, lots been has been written about the Shemps, but I haven't found anything about like what covers I knew, I know it was a cover band. Like what, what type of cover band? Yeah. Bar rock. It was, it was kind of silly. The the Shemps only fit into the narrative in that that was the first band I played in with uh, Chris. I mean, it is not part of any, you know, artistic, cultural, or it's not pre sound lineage. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. they're, they're, I, I come across that um, the the guy who formed the Shemps was inter, was tracked down and interviewed for a book about the Seattle scene, or and he kind of I think he's thrown out there the idea that he started Soundgarden, and mm-hmm. um, he did. I never I never played a second with him in in Soundgarden, and so it somehow became part of the story. I didn't interview with some Boston DJs that says, well, the Shemps became Soundgarden. It's like, no, <laughs> it's unrelated. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about, you know, an original band where Chris is the drummer and I'm the guitarist. And then you're talking about a shitty bar rock cover band that paid for, played for, you know, pocket change and beer money where I was the bass player and Chris was the singer. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were playing entirely different instruments. Neither It wasn't really our band. We were kind of, helping out my roommate who was a really good guitar player but he wasn't you know he wasn't much of a songwriter he wasn't inventive he was just a great player I mean, i learned a lot of riffs from watching him but you know he would start this band and do hendrix and doors and stones and otis redding songs and frankly kind of bored me but he was my friend and um it was an opportunity for me to learn how to play some of these songs and um 
I'd met Chris through this guy. They were, you know, he was trying to get, he was trying to get Chris, um, our friend Matt Dentino was, uh, he's guys started this band and he wanted, he found Chris through an ad uh, as a young guy who wanted to be a singer, wanted to try singing if he had drummed up until that point. So that's how that started. And, you know, we'd play, I think we played a, a hippie pizza place, played a few bars. I mean, places that I probably wouldn't have played with Soundgarden, you know, mm-hmm. yep. different, different audience. Yeah. Definitely a different demographic. Yeah. Okay. So once you do, you know, once you and Hero and Chris start jamming together, it sounds like the songs started coming pretty quickly. Now, like, were there yeah, they did. any keepers, like anything that we know that was, that you, that you kept? From those very first you know, mm. jam sessions? No. I mean, they, we played them live regularly. There, there were songs that there were keepers in that they we loved them. They entered our set, but we were writing. We became, you know, we're, we're somewhat prolific. Every time we came to practice, somebody would have an idea. In the early, for the first two or three years, it was mostly me or Hero because mm-hmm. you know, Chris was playing drums. It wasn't like he can tap out a riff, you know, we were a guitar band, so we wrote on guitar. Um, Hero didn't play guitar that well, so he'd write on bass and show me a riff, and I'd, I'd come up with various guitar parts around it. So if his, his bass riff may be linear, and I'd follow the line and add some, go up an octave, you know, try some string bend things that sound like leads, or I'd play some chords or some heavy notes, and we'd come up with a dynamic arrangement Chris would write lyrics. So he was mostly writing lyrics then. Um, he, his guitar ideas, the songs he wrote musically were, were fewer and far between, you know. Um, but he was really prolific with lyrics and we were prolific with the musical ideas. So eventually all the songs that we liked, we, we kept some of them in our set, but he started getting, you know, replaced and supplanted by new material. And it's that new material that was fresh on our mind that we'd take with us into the studio. So we, we got to the point that we could afford to make records or someone was, you know, fronting us money to make a record like sub pop or actually the sub pop record we financed ourselves. <laughs> um, but with people like SST, Ultra Mango, you know, the Ultra Mango K album, they give us money to record that. It's like, okay, let's take these. For the most part, we take the new ideas we're working on, but we, we, kind of balance them with songs that are really strong live and try to document them. But a lot of the early songs that we played live regularly, they just kind of, we loved them, but the newer songs gained favor and interest, and we wanted to hear them documented, recorded. What about stylistically? Was it a big shift? Because, you know, you hear that early stuff described as, you know, having a real, like, almost like a UK post-punk sound. It had it had a bit of the UK post punk sound. Um, definitely, we liked you know, Joy Division, Bauhaus, uh, Wire. We really liked the moods of One Five Four. I remember describing Wire One Five Four as being like an angular Pink Floyd, you know. Yeah. Um, Killing Joke, you know, War Dance, Requiem, we just, Blood Sport. We loved that album. Mm-hmm. But I was also into this American progressive post-hardcore, like the big boys and who's could do the Meat Puppets. And so was Chris and Hero. We played them. The Meat Puppets' second album, just Hero just loved that because he, 
Hero used to be a little more hippie-ish. You know, he played mandolin before playing bass. And so Meat Puppets 2 just fell right in line with uh, his taste. And I loved it because it was, it was, you know, it was crazy and wild as well as trippy. Mm-hmm. And Chris loved it. And God, everything that was coming out of SST was really where my head was at, with the exception of the big boys, which, <laughs> which even though they weren't on SST, their album was produced by Spot. The yeah. lullabies helped <laughs> the brain grow. So it kind of fit in, in all that, you know. It's like, hey, this post-hardcore band that's incorporated funk and brass, and, and the Meat Puppets, post-hardcore bands incorporating some kind of, you know, Grateful Dead, Neil Young thing, and, and then the Minutemen, these beatnik bongo you know, and there are all these cool post-punk bands that had their own distinct unique guitar style mm-hmm. and then you hear you know saint vitus and they're kind of like this heavy sabbathy band and, and then we were kind of this quirky psychedelic heavy band you know those are the elements we played with and yeah the earlier material was probably a little bit more quirky psychedelic and Angular, you know, some weird time signatures. Everything was in standard tuning, but weird time signatures. And um, But the psychedelic element, which came in the form of feedback or, uh, you know, minor keys or whatever, those, those elements became a little bit louder. So mm-hmm. when Chris started singing full-time and, and stopped playing drums, the drummer we got to replace him with Scott Sunquist was an older guy and he was kind of his style kind of evoked this Hendrix and Santana sort of jamminess with us. And so the feedback became a consequence of loudness, a volume and not just, you know, tripping, you know, not just a chorus, uh, you know, a chorus pedal inspired trippiness. It became a function of the volume. And so those, single note riffs that Hero wrote on bass that was, you know, patterning and duplicating on guitar became louder and heavier and and eventually we became uh, we always had a heavy element but it was more in the darkness of our sound and the psychedelia of our sound and it became more of a um, the dark psychedelic element became definitely more of a a viscerally um, heavy element Funny that you mentioned those single note riffs because you got me thinking now. I, so I was going back and, you know, I listened to, to Screaming Life and stuff just to kind of prepare for this and remind myself it's been a while. And I was listening to Hunted Down and it, thinking it through, listening to it differently as I do when I'm, now that we're doing this podcast, you tend to listen to things th- through a different lens maybe. And uh, that that kind of single note riff, it really brought the i think like a it really reminded me of black flag to be honest with you and like you're even playing i it sounds like some gin chords to me what we call gin chords you are playing in that song and you know that you hear about the the my war tour tour coming through seattle and and it kind of it seems like it was a really uh you know a a flashpoint for everybody how how big of a direct influence do you think black flag was on the band and and on you personally as a guitar player well, they were definitely huge in Seattle because the SST bands were some of the few bands that would actually play Seattle. Um, that's partially because of routing, you know. Right. Seattle was a long way away from San Francisco. 
unless you had a gig in Portland or going to Vancouver to play with DOA, unless you were going there, there's no reason to really come to Seattle. So, so the SST guys would, but bigger bands wouldn't. And, uh, but that was not just a function of the band. I mean, people, when people tell this, you probably heard the story before from other interviewers that say the bands wouldn't come through because of the routing. But it was more than that. <clears throat> Promoters often wouldn't invest in bands if they didn't think there was a suitable market, you know. They would say, oh, well, I don't know if there's enough people in here in Seattle for me to sell this show. They wouldn't bring the show in. Mm-hmm. So the SST guys would. And so that was an opportunity for all the punk rockers and a few metalheads to go check out some cool bands. Um, that band that was in Bozo and the Pinheads, our bass player, Linda Archer, uh, after the band broke up, she moved to Texas for a bit where she turned on to the Dicks and, and the Huns. And uh, she was aware of the big boys and the singer Biscuit Turner. She came back. I think it was, I might be getting the chronology a little bit wrong here, but when she was in Texas, it was the Dicks were starting out and the Huns were starting out. And at some point, 1979, she had a copy of Jealous Again by Black Flag and turned us on to that. Mm. And and uh, so that was a big deal because you know, we're used to seeing records in stores when they hit a major label, like like when Devo and, uh, came out on Warner Brothers or the B-52s came out on their major label. And the indie stuff you kind of find in these out-of-the-way record stores. And the young guy was kind of hard to orient what Blank Records was or Siren or whatever. Uh, bands like, you know, bands would make a indie single, and then they, when they get signed, they make a, a major label record that you can find in record stores. Uh, you know, and and this Black Flag record was obscure. You know, you didn't see it if you went to Sears or whatever, or 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 a, a regular record store, the record store section at a department store. You're not going to find it. So it it somehow it seemed like it was self published, and it was. And so for that reason, something about it seemed it was obscure and uh, and almost like it was illegitimate. It's like, well, is it really published? <laughs> and we were trying to, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm 18. I'm trying to understand, you know, I guess you can put oh. stuff out yourself. But then, <laughs> yeah, how do you do it? And how do you get it to people? And is, is it, I mean, is, does that count? <laughs> they cracked the code. SST cracked the code. For sure. <laughs> yep. Black Flag was important. Yeah. P- plus they sponsored all the, you know, the Minuteman and, Meat puppets. They brought them up to Seattle, opening for them. So you know, that was without Black Flag, we wouldn't have turned on to many bands. Right, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so fast forwarding a bit until like it's kind of well documented that you're already talking to A and M and some other bigger labels, but you you have some time before that's whole, all that sorted out, and you you want to release a record on SST. I'm assuming because of you know what you're you're mentioning, like they're this. At yeah. this point, a legendary label, and you want to be associated with them. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's well. That that would have been a goal of ours and a few other bands at some point, probably in eighty four, eighty five, eighty six. The interest in the major labels kind of came about because of some of our sub pop recordings got out there so before the sub pop record came out. Some of the eight track recordings were 
distributed by some former DJs in auditioning for record labels as A&R people or whatever. They'd say, hey, I'm from Seattle. I got my degree in communications. I worked at a radio station. Here's some bands come out of the Seattle area that I think could could uh, do well on record labels. And we, we sort of became, along with other bands, kind of became part of the portfolio of a few people who are moving on to commercial radio or or uh, record labels, right? Mm-hmm. And so, that, so our song, Nothing to Say, was on some of these tapes. And that generated a lot of interest because of the the heaviness, trippiness, darkness of the song, the power of Chris's voice. Yep. And so A&M came calling, Slash Records came calling. There may have been, I think eventually Epic came calling. But we, our interest had already been with SST. You know, we're playing shows with the Screaming Trees. We're playing with uh, Green River and, and Melvins and... We're, we're, we're playing shows with butthole surfers, meat puppets, and this is kind of where we're at. And I had actually solicited Homestead Records at that time, and uh, and uh, I think Gerard Cosley, Cosley was not... I think he told Mark Arm that um, he'd done a few signings over that summer and could not afford to sign another band, but that was the best thing he had heard in quite a while. Um, which is what he told told us in his um, apology for <laughs> not pursuing you know, interest. But at the same time, I had sent something. I somehow, God, I'm trying to make sure I'm accurate here. But we 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 came to the attention of Greg Ginn through Das Damen, Screaming Trees, and Saint Vitus. Um, a couple of the guys at Das and Lyle and Alex, I think, or Phil. Do you remember the names? Lyle oh, Hyphen oh, yeah, and yeah. you're the other. Phil Leopold von Trapp, Alex Totino. Yeah, a couple of couple of those guys wrote for like Rock Pool or a CMJ mm. College Music Journal. They gave a good review to our sub pop record, and then we played a few shows with Saint Vitus and the guys at Saint Vitus. Um, mentioned us to the SST guys, to Greg and Chuck, and the Screaming Trees did as well. They had signed, and I think Greg had asked what's going on in Seattle and Screaming Trees, you know, Mark Pickerel and Lanigan said there's this great band called Soundgarden, you should check them out. And I think Pickerel might have called me, Mark Pickerel or Lanigan, and said, hey, you know, we talked you guys up and the guys at SST have heard about you from a few bands and might want to give Greg a call. And, and they gave me Greg's number. I called them, talked to them for a bit and sent them a, a six or seven song tape of things you were demoing. Mm-hmm. He was just really interested. He wanted to get a band from, uh, wanted to sign a band from Seattle. He liked the skinny trees. He trusted their judgment. He liked what our sub pop record. So that was that we were like, yeah, right on. Greg from Black Flag wants to put us on his label. <laughs> Would this have been um, some of the demos that are on the the 2017 correction of Ultra Mega OK? Those were recorded by Jack and Dino. They, were, they, they weren't pre-production. They were kind of... We, we did a lot of recording with Jack when we could. And they're kind of related to like the Screaming Light sessions. It... I think it would have been home recordings that we would have recorded 
Hero and Chris's apartment. Well, they rented out houses, you know, so we mm-hmm. probably recorded it in a basement or attic on a four track. So that's likely what it would have been was some four track rehearsal recordings and not the stuff that was on Ultra Mega EP, as we called it. The recording of the Ultra Mega OK record. So if I have this right, you're kind of recording it uh, with this dogfish, some of it with with the Dogfish Studio, some with their mobile unit, which had also been used to record the Who's Got the Ten and a Half record. How did that all play out? Yes. We also used some of the mobile unit to record FOP, the FOP EP. Mm, okay. Um, you know, we we love that. We love the novelty of the experience that we like, especially Matt. You know, Matt Matt has a great ear for drum you know, for rooms to get drum sounds. Yeah, and he loved the uh, the idea of like not being bound by the room in the studio. We find a good room and bring the mobile unit up. Uh, that was a cool idea to, for us, and um, we were a little bit disappointed with the guitar sounds and on FOP. You know, it's, it, it, things sounded kind of brittle there. So we thought, ah, well, maybe that's maybe that's you know Steve Fisk's vision. You know, some of his it's it's fine. It, it worked for it was the 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 EP, the FOP EP is a little bit experimental. Right, yeah. Um, we figured, you know, who's got the 10 and a half? Drew can focus on the fact that we were a strong live band and capture that live sound. That would be great. So we trusted in that. But when we started listening to what was going on tape, it was sort of that same problem, that brittle sound, that sort of thin and uh, not smooth and warm, but kind of thin and transistory. That started, that's what we were hearing off the tape. We thought, well, we're still kind of young and Drew's experience probably is to get worked out in the mix and in the mastering, you know? I mean, we were telling ourselves that as opposed to having the uh, producer tell you that. We were lying to ourselves or deluding ourselves. So it did not get worked out in the mix. So we were, we were, really disappointed and greg at black Flight, you know greg at sst was disappointed he and chuck said you know yeah we'd like to we, we think it should be remixed and we, we 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 brought it up to him and he was just the guys at sst were so supportive and receptive to our tried ideas it was fantastic he said you know we feel bad about this we know we spent a lot of money but we're just not happy with the way this sounds and 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 greg agreed said yeah let's remix it and Jack and Jack and Dino said, "I'll do it." And he was, "I think it does need to re- be remixed." And we're everyone is on board, you know, and a new engineer, producer, the band, the label. We're all going to do this. But then we're off touring, and while we're touring, the talks got heavy with the other labels, and and uh, um, then some internal, you know, problems happened within the band, and. Uh, we you know, we started record demoing and playing, touring and and writing, and then we started doing Love and Love. We recorded that, and then Hero quit, so we talked him into hanging out. Mm-hmm. We we toured, and in the, in the well, Hero he didn't he kind of expressed you know some dissatisfaction with the whole process, the, well, especially the touring, the fact we we're always gone, and. Uh, yeah, we, by, by that point, it's full steam ahead, right? It's we'd love to do this. Yeah, we we're we we're in other priorities. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so we were in Europe when Hero quit, but not for Loud and Love. We were touring for Ultra Mega OK, right. and Hero quit. We said, let's just go home and think about it. We went 
came in home and after a few months he he confirmed like nah i think i'm gonna do something else mm-hmm. so and that was when ultimate that's when loud love came out so yes there's so many things going on but but probably the heavy besides talking to other labels of having you know principal founder of the band leave um really put the idea of remixing on ice while we had to had the new responsibility and heavy decision making of finding uh, a significant fourth member who writes and can fit with our personalities. That must have been so disappointing for you, though. Like your your dream, in a sense, is coming true. You're putting out a record on this esteemed label that you you know it's this is all you've wanted, and and it's you're not happy with it. Yeah, it was it was a it was a definitely a bit of a mummer. Yeah, and. It's the only album we've remixed, you know, since the only album we 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 need we need to remix, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned touring. You toured with Sylvia Jankoza. Yeah, yeah, she was opening for us. That was a uh, that was back when SST had a they had a they developed a booking agency, a global, I believe, yeah. was the yeah. Were you the, swa? Uh, they booked tours. <laughs> were, <laughs> what was that? Were you swa? Were we, where we swap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we played with them, I believe, in uh, in L.A. God, I can't remember the name of the gig, the venue. Um, yeah, the tour with Junkosa was was great. That you know, we became friends with their drummer Mike and uh, their their sound man, tour manager Dino Galasso. Ended up becoming very close friends. Um, he became our tour manager in Europe. He, after that, we brought him to the U.S. and he was a guitar tech. Mm-hmm. He'd play on stage with us during encores. He'd come out and play uh, "Sunshine of Your Love" by Cream or or "Problem Child" by ACDC with us. There are some other songs in there that right. other covers that we did. He'd come out and play with us. So that was a fun tour. You know, we got along with those guys well and and uh, maintained some relationships. You know, you know after that. Okay, so the first track, Flower, so I, I'm sure you get asked about this all the time, but the, the blowing on the strings trick, did you pick that up from yeah. somewhere or did you just come up with that on your own? No, I came up with that because the guitar, the Guild S100, the, the one I played then I would have bought when I was 18, it was somewhat light. I mean, with most you know, strats and Les Pauls are very heavy. Um, this is lighter than the SG, but... Um, that lightness made it a little bit added to the microphonic nature of the pickups. And those, the pickups in those guitar were particularly microphonic. Like you can yell into them, it'll come through the amp. And that was unusual. I'd seen other guitars that were like that, where you could kind of talk into them. Yeah. I think it has something to do with whether how tightly the pickup coils are wound or whether they're dipped in wax or not. And these were not that tightly wound apparently and they weren't dipped in wax they were somewhat microphonic which is beautiful for a couple things it helped me define my sound i played the way my personality as a guitarist kind of grew out of the personality of the guitar that i had the one guitar i had you always played back fairly easily um no i had a i had a a strat copy before that but yeah i wasn't rich i had one guitar and i was killed and i bought it because it was affordable yeah. It looked cool. 
It wasn't a Gibson or Fender. It was it was kind of light, which was great. I mean, and it had a its neck was its fretboard was just a little bit thinner than most Gibson fretboards, and that was great for me. You know, this it, I was they, learning how to play, and and it was easier to make chords with that. Are they single coil pickups? In a, in, in the no, they're, they're humbuckers. humbuckers. Yeah, no, they're, they're humbuckers. As a matter of fact, it has it came that that S one hundred deluxe. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying deluxe because it came with the added feature of a coil tap switch, so I can I can switch between the humbucker and the uh, single coil right, yep. effect of, of the of the and there were stock pickups, but it would it would feed back. So if I I'd stand or set my amp to control the the feedback, and I can get it to hum, you know, and especially if I used a chorus pedal or or if I had it on the lower pickup. Rather than it didn't squeal or screech, it just kind of went. It was just it was trippy. It was like a UFO landing or something. So that if I can control that hum, depending on the pedals I use or where I stood in relationship to the to the amp or what kind of cabinets I was using, yep. where the amp was set, it, it just added to the trippiness. Just be able to hang on the note and have it just kind of grow and get loud and just or bend and move around. So that. That really influenced how I played because my guitar did that. So in trying to control that, I kind of came up with feedback. Was if you'd have to, if you spoke to people in the early Seattle days, the guys from the Melvins or Green River or or uh, Skinyard, they'll they'll probably all tell you, oh yeah, feedback was an important part of a Soundgarden sound. It eventually went away as we got other used other guitars and we we're writing different songs, songs that. Uh, especially Chris would write songs that didn't have as much space in them, so right. there really wasn't room for 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 feeding back. But songs like Incessant Mace or certainly did have that room, or or Beyond the Wheel, which Chris Chris wrote uh, does. And Flower was was you know we're we're looking at the intro and and um, because that was one of our first songs, we used a drop D tuning. You have this sympathetic vibration between the low D, the E string, which is tuned down to D, and then the third string, which is the D. And so I could not do this in standard tuning, but in when I dropped the D, you'd get this other little hum from my guitar and that feedback. And so I blew across the strings. It would just be, it would resonate sympathetically like that, like a, a sitar or something, right, uh, yeah. or, or, but. Let's record. You know, let let we gotta record this. This we, I believe that it's something that people didn't do. It's something I was not aware of that being done. It's funny when I tried to do it live, the reviews would all say, "Jim Kyle played the guitar solo with his beard." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know I have a beard. I'm one of the few few guys who was, was able to figure out he can grow a beard in his twenties and okay. did so and. So it must be the beard that's doing it. <laughs> so the the innovation was lost. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> through perception, yeah. misperception. Yeah. Well, one, I mean, it's not an innovation, but uh, the the tuning down. I I feel like you were probably one of the the first bands or a band that t- turned a lot of people on to tuning down. Yeah, I think I think. Um, at least directly, I know. I know uh, Jerry and uh, Cantrell from Allison Change had asked about our song "Nothing to Say," and mm-hmm. I remember telling him, you know, 
how to play it. I, I explained that we dropped him that down to D. Uh, I, I know that Sabbath had done things in drop D that it was, I remember Buzz had learned that about uh, Tony Yomi and he had told, he was telling me and Mark Arm about it. I thought, oh, I'm going to go try that. And I tried it. It's like, this works for Soundgarden. Yeah. Um, the first thing I wrote was nothing to say and the, the band loved it. So we kept it around. I think, you know, other bands probably had done that. You know, the Stones used open tuning, the people used slide tunings. Alternate tunings was not new to rock, but... New in your, in your kind of what, scene, though, I, I guess is what I'm getting at. It was, yeah. Yeah, punk, yeah, punk rock is more standard tuning. It's like yeah. you play those you play those power, those bar chords, you know, real fast. That's the Ramones, that's, that's the Saints, that's the Dead Boys. And if you're, you're playing power chords, you don't need to worry about... Uh, tunings that complicate it you you might and you don't need to worry about tunings that emphasize slide or or unison notes or single single string riffs like you were talking about with hunted down it's like well that's not really punk rock so so standard tuning would suffice or you or they use the standard tuning intervals and just drop the whole Thing down a half step or a whole step like I, I think I read that Kiss used to play everything a half step down and I met a few guys in punk rock bands that, that would tune everything down you same intervals of fourths or fifths or whatever blah blah, blah but they tuned down like a E flat or D or whatever mm-hmm. just to make it sound heavier and we would just tune the one string down so you, you're making the the fifths easier to play you can drone on the lower string and so it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't something new to music or rock. It was certainly new to our scene, I think. Yeah. And then of course the Nirvana guys started doing it. Um so I think at that time we were the band doing that, you know, and people so it kinda of got around or Soundgarden have a bunch of these songs. They take the E string, they crop it down to D, and they make chords in this position rather than that position. And Nirvana started doing that, Alpha Chain started doing it and yeah that they kind of became a thing there. Yeah, the rest is history. Some other bands are doing it too. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so the video was Mark Miriman somebody you you knew, or was he somebody like that the label found? Yeah, I think it was someone Greg or Chuck had suggested hmm. and sent our way. Okay. I believe. I mean, there's a possibility that our our manager Susan Silver may have uh, may have come across his name, but he was. Yeah, I don't think he was a Seattle guy. We shot it in L.A. So it leads me to believe that the SST guys had brought, brought his name up. But it, it could have been that someone had mentioned something to Susan Silver, and she might have said, hey, we, I, I learned about a guy who we should direct the flower, use to direct the flower video. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may have been what happened, but I, I suspect the SST guys might have thrown his name at us. Uh, the next song is All Your Lies. I think that one's a few years old by this point, by the time you're recording it for this record. That's correct. Yeah. Yes, um, we had... We had definitely recorded it with Jack and Dino before. Um, it just didn't. You know, the thing with Screaming Life is we were, we wanted to do an album. But the guys, you know, Bruce and John at Sub Pop, like was the common at the time with new young bands, especially indie bands and punk bands. Your first step forward would be with an EP because you're 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 a uh, purchase price at retail is going to be a few bucks less 
than a full 12-inch album, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, you're, you're getting the listener, the radio station, and the magazine reviewers. You're asking less of their time to review it. Right. So a 23, 24-minute EP we could sell for five bucks as opposed to whatever, nine or ten bucks. You could sell for five or six rather than someone committing to 45 minutes of your time for some band they barely have heard of and they may or may not like. They only have to commit to a handful of songs and you're, you're not trying their patience or asking too much of them. And it's a lot of punk rock bands uh, would, would start off with, with EPs, you know, whether it was Mud Honey, Green River, um, Part-Time Christians, Butthole Surfers, Sonic Youth, uh, on and on, you know, you throw, you know, five or six songs out there uh, and and you're not asking too much of the consumer. They can maybe skip school lunch for a week and, and go spend five bucks on, on your record. And that's, that's what we did. So, so we put six songs on Screaming Life on that, on that album and sold it for EP price. And, um, of course, I don't want to conflate the idea of album and LP, which is often what people do. Right. And so we had we had we, we recorded a lot more material, and and much of which we re-recorded for Ultra Mega OK, some of which we re-recorded for Loud and Love, and All Your Lies was definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. It was a song that had been regular part of our live set for quite a long time, and and that was probably the third or fourth time we recorded it. <laughs> All right, uh, you've got six six five and then six six seven. You're uh, getting yep. on the getting in on the satanic panic backwards masking <laughs> craze of the eighties. <laughs> well, it was it was Santa, it was satanic actually because if you play the you play those tracks backwards, um, Chris is saying he's he's a uh, writing a, a wish list, I guess, to Santa Claus. He's saying, my sweet Santa, what will you bring me for Christmas? And it is it is playing off of the... The, the, uh, the Beatles, the, yeah. The, the idiocy. The, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's playing off the idiocy of, 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 uh, of, the, of either Satanism or the, or the fear of it, which is a huge thing in the 80s. And the, the, the satanic panic, um, people are seeing shadows where the, that weren't there. Um, and the idiotic interpretation of backward masking and and satanic backward masking, and somehow it was part of subliminal advertising or promotion, and they're 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 sending messages backwards that you don't get consciously, but subconsciously it's influencing you. Then advertisers do it all the time, and so do devil worshippers. Yep. <laughs> so Coca Cola and Satan. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just yeah we're just playing off of that, but. That that actually was a whole song, and I Chris's lyrics. I think he was calling it "Feed the Earth," and I thought it should be called a "Drag Your Bodies Home." Um, that was one of the lines in it. You know, drag your body home, and I thought that would be a cool title for a song. But but our our drummer Scott Sunquist, who preceded Matt in the band when we'd first written that song. Uh, he kept calling it scraping pig because that's the line that he remembered uh, <laughs> out of the song. So he'd refer to it as scraping pig. It started going on our set list of scraping pig. I hated the title. 
And I didn't like the ideas I came up with on guitar. It was really Hero's riff. It was, you know, he wrote the bass, and it was all bass feedback. Cool, heavy, dark. Chris wrote lyrics over it. And all of a sudden, it went from this cool, heavy, dark, feedbacky thing to being called Scraping Pig, which is sound like some weird Looney Tunes thing. <laughs> and, and my guitar part, I was trying to come up with a guitar part that wouldn't conflict with the dark, trippy feedback ambience of that hero was playing. And I was kind of coming up with these arpeggiated parts, which at the time I wasn't happy with. I didn't think it was, I didn't think the arrangement for my guitar parts was fitting with the song. And I, and I, I would kind of change it and I change it again. And then we went to record it. And it's like, you know, the best part of this is, is the bass. And I don't like the I don't like the title. And I don't like my guitar stuff. And I suggested just scrapping it from the album. And those guys really wanted it on the album. So I said, well, eventually the solution was why don't we emphasize the bass feedback shit? And yeah. we can just kind of there's two themes in there. Why don't we split it up into those two themes? And we can and then the <laughs> the goofy humorous reference was like, you can just kind of bookend beyond the wheel with it. Just six, six, five and six, six, seven. There's the little funny implication in the back, <laughs> the backward Santa thing and all that. It's like, yeah, all right. And so we decided that was a way to salvage the song because I, I, I didn't like my guitar parts and I just didn't want to call it fucking scraping. It's something like that. We called it feed the earth, which was Chris. Yeah, if we call it Feed the Earth, that would have been cool. If we call it Drag Your Body Home, that would have been I, anything. It just didn't want to turn a beautiful, a beautiful song, a dark song, into something kind of cartoony. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did. We <laughs> made it. So it's going to be cartoony. Let's 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 do this. Let's be deliberate about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you mentioned earlier. Uh, nothing to say was kind of like uh, something people latched onto. I feel like Beyond the Wheel would have fit into that category too. Yes. A landmark song yes. for the band. And yes. We didn't get it at the time because of we'd been playing Flower live for... Flower was relatively new, but we played it live a bit. Um, All Your Lies and Circle of Power had been around for a few years, and they're, you know, our, fan, you know, our fans and friends loved those songs. So they were, you know, really solid part of our set. Beyond the Wheel was a little bit newer. Chris brought... I can't remember if he demoed it or the demo was kind of rough. He might have four tracked it and brought it in while we were at reciprocal at the, when the reciprocal was still the eight, eight track studio and he brought it in, played it for us, which is kind of weird to sit in the studio and then I have to appraise or judge a song. Uh, mm -hmm. I love the heaviness. It was really surprising because it was like, wow, Chris wrote a heavy song. You know? And, I think the criticism was, you know, Chris's voice really went up there. And I think Hero thought, that's kind of metal. <laughs> it's totally like, you know, this, this uh, metal falsetto type thing going on. And I thought, yeah, it is. And that maybe wasn't how we saw ourselves. But I did not see it as, a, as detracting from the trippy heaviness of the riff. And I thought, well... I think it augments the power of the riff in this case. 
I don't think it's taking away from it. I mean, the real, the strong point is that riff, mm-hmm. and yep. we got to think about that, and not worry about whether it's it's too Dio esque. Um, I didn't. That didn't bother me. It might may have bothered, uh, maybe may have bugged the other guys in the band a little bit. They may have been a little bit cautious about it, about it being kind of metal. Well, it's not operatic in the Bruce Dickinson way. It's it definitely <laughs> is like heavy. And did like did did that take you? Like, did you know? Did you know Chris could do exactly. that? Had you heard him sing like that? Um. No, his power was more in like a Springsteen type register, you know, bar rock. I mean, when we first played together, it was in that, the bar band, the Shemp. So it's like, you know, a lot of that shit that I thought was really pedestrian, like, you know, doors, stones, you know, I mean, I just the ubiquitous bar rock stuff. The guys 10, 20 years older than us played in bars. You know, covers and and Chris's voice was kind of in there. It was like it was good, and he had a, a great ear and great instrument. He, he had a strength and power in his voice, but it was kind of kind of regular and pedestrian. Like like a lot of really good singers did that, and he, he was young, so he was when he did when he when he did that. It there are two things I thought I hadn't heard him do that, and B. How do you do that, and is that a thing? I didn't have a concept of going up that high as being difficult. Mm-hmm. I just thought he's singing high. I, I didn't understand that it required a different strength to do. Um, at that point, when I, when I first heard it, it's like, huh. So I was kind of nonplussed by the achievement, you know, physically as, as from a vocalist point of view. Um, I grabbed onto it being from a songwriter's point of view and thinking, uh, he's, he's, he's going up there, which is more metallic. And maybe, maybe that's cool because if he's going to be singing and much rather have him sound like the like deal than sound like a bar guy. Right. What was that guy, Brian? Who was that guy from Vancouver, BC, who was huge in the eighties on MTV? Oh, Brian, Brian <laughs> Brian Adams, yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah, let's don't do the Brian Adams thing. Yeah. But um, you pointed out, yes, it was not operatic. It was not dramatic. It, yeah. it wasn't. There was no it's dramatic and drama, dramatic inflection. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was just muscle without the without the uh, you know, without the editorializing. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, and lyrically too, you're not singing about dragons or the Shire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and no wizards or dragons, exactly. Yeah. Jeez, that that was that was always an annoying thing. Yeah. <laughs> I love the title. What what's it called, Chris? Beyond the wheel. Yeah. Beneath the wheel. No, that's not what I said. Beyond the wheel. <laughs> Beyond the wheel. That's fucking cool. <laughs> because I, you know, beneath the wheel, I think was a Herman Hesse novel I'd read. I'm mm. like beneath the wheel cool have you read that no that's all i said beyond the wheel (laughs) (laughs) uh the next one is mood for trouble another one of chris's is he i know he plays guitar on this one is he the acoustic guitar yes he's the acoustic guitar um when i first heard the song i thought do we need to have an acoustic guitar on one of our songs i "I don't want to play the acoustic guitar and because it was rhythmically very specific 
you know, and Chris had been our drummer, and he, so it's like, well, you do the acoustic guitar, you know, so you, acoustic guitars in rock often have a more percussive uh, element or component to them. They're a little bit brighter, and they're, you know, and they're often used for that purpose. Either you're doing arpeggios, and you want to get a, a warm, you know, resonant tone, or you're getting that, and and you get the attack of the, you know, the pick attack. Yeah. And so it was really important that you get the guy with the drummer sensibilities to do that. And so I did the part that I liked, which was the who's could do part, the, the dig, 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 you know, the, the uh, doublet thing there. Yeah. On the single note riffs. <laughs> well, if you listen to classic rock, like the stones and the who they're always double tracking with a, with an acoustic guitar. It seems like I know. Fuck those guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you, you're right. And I, I, I so you get these big heavy electrics, and then you, the acoustic will give definition to the chord mm. and the sound. So, so you don't you don't overtly hear an acoustic guitar, but what it, it brings a clarity, yeah. And um, I don't know if I doubled it on electric. I don't. I think it's just the acoustic. Yeah. Now, obviously, the cover photo to the album suggests Chris was playing guitar live by this point. Was that? relatively new or did he do that as soon as he moved off of drums no it took a while it it, it he just sang and i think he liked being freed up and not having to hold things in his hand except for the microphone and he could do things like he he, he had a stick for a while where he would tear his shirt off <laughs> which which turned out drunk girls loved and yeah. and, uh, and some drunk guys loved too so so when, when when we did that, people went woo. That, you know, then then uh then the male stripper in him was born, <laughs> and so so you you do it again. Then it's like you know if you play like three or four shows in a row, it's like okay, don't do it this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but your hands are free to do stuff. You know, you can you know he he climb things. He climb the uh, the pipes and infrastructure inside of a club. You know, he, and. I'd climb along the ceiling. He'd smash the the mic stand, and this is a lot. You know, it, it, he could do more damage with the mic stand than he was with his drumstick. That was fine for me. It, it just added the energy and passion of the show. But eventually, he'd write songs, and it's like, well, I can't keep smashing the, I can't keep climbing stuff and smashing the mic stand and tearing my shirt off. I'm, and you know, I'm going to have to uh, uh, play a guitar. <laughs> so, it, the, the guitar is a great prop for for uh, singers, and uh, um, because you know you don't just stand there with your arm, arms swinging around like a you know like a like a bored kid. Um, so, especially on songs he wrote, and so he'd write songs, and there um, that where he specifically thought the sound would benefit from two guitars, and there were a few friends of ours bands that had like green river mother love ball. They were two guitar bands. So he'd write a song, think I'm going to, the songs would be heavier if, if I play guitar too. And then I can, I can hold down the riff while you solo or we can, and it was rarely ever the case. It would be two different guitar parts. It'd usually be, I'll play the the main thing. You play the main thing and then solo when you want to. And rather than the sound dropping out, they'll still be, that energy there for this song. And so he'd play on some of his songs. Like he didn't play on Beyond the Wheel. Uh, he did play a Move for Trouble, which we didn't do live that often. So it really varied. He didn't play guitar and outshined. 
but he did play on Spoon Man, and he did play on Black Hole Sun. So yeah, it varied. You know, he mostly played songs he wrote, and not in all of them. And there's an and and I was being a little bit, you know, I was I was was being a little bit uh, tongue in cheek there when talking about what singers do with their hands, but partly serious because singers often need to figure out what to do with their hands. If you don't know how to dance, then your hands are just sitting there at your side or holding the mic, you know. Uh, And rock singers, um, unfortunately, do not have the ability to entertain the audience with their footwork. (laughs) They they often just kind of uh, stomp around or hold their arms up in the air and give the cornute or whatever. But the other important and the serious important aspect of a singer playing guitar is it helps orient his ear in the song mm-hmm. by so his if you you may have noticed this but um singers who play guitar they play with their elbows and lead guitars play at their wrist and bass players tend to play with their shoulders right and their fingers yeah. but if you watch if you watch two guitar bands and singers one of them he's kind of moving his elbow and with the elbow you've got you've got a metronome there and and you're kind of you're counting, and Chris is a drummer. He plays with his elbow. He's counting the rhythm. He's orienting himself within the song. He's listening to his guitar, which is orienting his voice. He's orienting his ear. And with certain songs, is really important because if he's stuck in between me and Hero or me and Ben, um, it could affect his pitching if we're off to, especially if we're playing on a bigger stage. Kim's out there, Ben's out there. I got my monitors in front of me, but maybe there's a time delay or maybe Kim's bashing his guitar that out of, out of, you know, sharp or, or flat, but his guitars in his amps are right behind him. That's important now for his voice, especially with a song like black hole sun. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, but, but check it out next time. You know, I uh, will, for sure. It, it's, it's, it's fairly, fairly consistent that singers play at their elbows and, and guitarists and lead guitars play at their wrists. I mean, especially in the, the early they, in the early days when you're probably not getting the best monitor mix sometimes either. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> and, and 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 being a drummer helps him. It helps him. It helps him uh, pace the song and know where he is in the song, both in terms of uh, the arrangement and in terms of uh, pitching. Right. Okay. Then we've got your hardcore song, "Circle of Power." Circle of Power. Yeah. Yeah, it's hardcore in five four. Yeah, the, yeah, the main riff in five. Well, you were talking about the you know the time signature stuff earlier. This album has a lot of that stuff, like you know, not the kind of stuff you associate with necessarily with later era Soundgarden for sure. Well, yeah, well, you definitely get it with with later era Soundgarden, but around and you get it with our early stuff, or but, but we. The low was probably between uh, Ultra Mega OK and Loud and Love. We had a lot of material that we wrote with Scott Sunquist, and Scott's strengths were really playing in four and three, and sometimes six, which is a variation of three. So he could swing, but he was his groove was there. He couldn't really do fives or sevens. Matt can and Chris could. Um, that was one thing we were hesitant when, when Chris wanted to become a full time singer. Hero and I discussed this. We liked the way he wrote as a drummer. A lot of those early songs that we wrote, they were in standard time, but a lot of them were in fives. 
threes. And someone moved from three to four or five to three, and a couple sevens thrown in there. Well, Chris is a great songwriter, instrumentally as a drummer. He could do those. He could do those things. He could he could write lyrics. Uh, now he wasn't writing a lot of the music then, but he was writing lyrics that would wind around fives and threes because he had that sensibility as a drummer. Um, when Scott was in the band, our songs kind of became more. He was a little bit older, and he was like he, he grew up on the Sonics and Stones and Hendrix, so sort of stuff became heavier and a little bit more swingy in fours and threes. Um, when we got Matt, we we were freed up again, and eventually. Ben's in the band, and the weird time features do come back. Yeah, like, like Bad uh, Motor Finger, Rusty and, Cage, uh, or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, or My Wave is is five and fours. Never the Machine Forever is in nine. Uh, there's some other weird shit. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff there, but yeah, it kind of kind of dips around Ultra Mega OK and Loud and Love, with the exception of Circle of Power, which was written with Chris as uh, drumming, and even even at that point. When Scott was our drummer, when we would play Circle of Power, there were a couple different things we would do. One is Chris would come and play bass, and Hero would sing it live. So yeah. Hero, would be, he'd put the bass down, he'd sing. Uh, Scott would, or Matt would play the drums. Chris would play bass. There was a few times where Chris was singing, but when Circle, of, when we were uh, a three-piece, and even when Scott was in band, there were a few times that Chris would go from the front of the stage back to the drums, and then Scott would sit out, have a beard, Chris would play drums in Circle of Power, oh, wow. and Hero would <laughs> sing and play bass. And then, yeah, and then other times, Chris would play bass, and, and, and Matt would play drums, and Hero would just sing. So, yeah. So that was, that, that, that was a little bit unique in that regard. But Hero sang a lot in the early days, mostly Chris, but Hero sang, you know, maybe every fifth song or sixth song. But... Because Chris, I liked his interpretation of, like, Tears to Forget was a song that Hero used to sing off of Screaming Life. Oh, yeah. But um, when, we re when we recorded it, I kind of lobbied for Chris to do it because um, he could kind of imitate Hero, but could enunciate a little bit clearer and had this power in his, you know, in his voice that kind of made the song stronger. So, but yeah, Circle of Power was that, was that fun thing, uh, that was kind of like hardcore interpretation of the Mission Impossible riff. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, flipping it over, we've got "He Didn't," one of Matt's songs. Now, how did how did he show you this song? Was he did he play guitar? On guitar, yeah, yeah. Um, he didn't. He wasn't. He wasn't provide, presenting any four tracks. So as he came in, he showed us the riff, and I just looked at him and thought. What the hell are you doing there? How am I supposed to do that? <laughs> and he's like, and I go, no, really, it's, it's easier than it looks. And, and it just sounded like windy and, and circular. You know, mm -hmm. this kind of kept coming like a snake. You know, what what is that reference of snake on, with its tail and its mouth? <laughs> oh yeah, I know what you <laughs> it was, mean. It was, yeah. Is that a reference in Greek mythology or something? Uh, it, it kind of sounded like that, yeah. uh, and I would look and I'd watch him play. What the fuck are you doing? It's a weird one. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just, just the feel of it, just the way it kind of rolls. But I eventually learned how to play it, you know, just kind of watch him and go, oh, cool. So it was so windy and wiry and, and circular that way that I wanted to I wanted to add a little bit of heft to it, you know, so it fit with our other songs. So I played that riff 
uh, palm muted it. So you can, you can probably hear it, the thum, 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 just to kind of give it a little bit more bodies. Um, but that was a fun one to learn. And I, the way it moved was typical of something Soundgarden would want to do, but, but was not typical of something we had yet done. So it was perfect. And that began the tradition of Soundgarden songwriters all trying to impress the other guys in the band with a new way of uh, being heavy or trippy. <laughs> hey, guys, look at this. How'd you do that? Let's learn it. And that became kind of our thing is to impress each other. Healthy competition works, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Smokestack Lightning. Uh, I assume, I know Chris played on this one on the on the record. I'm assuming that's him playing the wah. Kind of I so. think so, which is weird. Which is weird because I'm the wah player. And are, I, use it, but, I use it for leads, yeah. but he's playing it for rhythm. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, I think he's doing the wah rhythmically because um, I'm left footed. So when I'm playing the wah, it, I'm not really tapping out the rhythm. I'm kind of my right arm's over here, my left foot's over there, and I'm just kind of my play. I play the wah more like my 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 finger or my mouth. It's not. It's not a regular sweep, you know. Yeah. Um, it's more like, you know how lead guitarists like move their stupid mouths when they're soloing? Wow, wow. Right, <laughs> Make right, little yeah. o, 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 o figures. Yeah, well, I do that with my foot. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's definitely Chris. And I will, I will say that I don't know why that song's on that album. I really did not want it there I, 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 at all. I, I, I didn't like playing it live. I, and no one will admit to it being on the record. I remember Hero saying, was it me? I didn't want that on the record. And Chris says, I didn't want it. I, it, I was pretty sure it was Hero because he's the one who introduced it to us, right? Um, hey, let's learn this Howling Wolf song. I, 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 didn't listen, I didn't listen to a lot of blues. Um, I wasn't a giant blues fan. Um, I don't think Chris kind of did because he liked some of the soulful vocal you know, that, that bar rock thing that, you know, he, that he kind of sort of dragged with them in his early days. But I think it was Hero because I think he, I think, you know, we both grew up in Chicago and I like the blues guitar, I like guitar, but I think he liked some aspects of blues songs. And I did not want it to be on the album because we had so much material that we hadn't recorded or hadn't released that the idea of putting on this, fucking blues cover was taking away a good Soundgarden song. It was, the, you know, it was, <laughs> we could have had, I don't know, a No Wrong, No Right on there or, <laughs> or Heretic or something, but when we got fucking blues song, yeah, I didn't, no one, no one owned up to it when we, you know, when people asked us about it, we did interviews like, I didn't want it on the record, I didn't want it on the record. <laughs> I, I think it was Hero. It's kind of redeemed by the nod to Sonic Youth. <laughs> um, well, you know what that was? That was off of a with a Death Valley '69. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that uh, Bad Moon Rising? Was that yeah. the EP yeah. where they where they kind of were sampling the Stooges? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we thought that was hilarious when they're sampling the Stooges. We thought, hey, let's sample the <laughs> Sonic Youth. Uh, how do you, well, how do you do sampling? I don't know. So and. So what we did was we put on Bad Moon Rising, Death Valley 69 in uh, on the turntable in Chris's room here, the attic room in, uh, ironically, in Scott Sunquist's house. Mm-hmm. Scott's not in the band, 
but Chris is living at Scott's house and we rehearsed upstairs at Scott's house with Matt. Um, but we put on Death Valley 69 and then Chris just jumped up and down on the, you know, the attic floor and made the, made the record skip. And for, and we, and Chris like, what do we record that? And for some reason we're like stupid little kids, like giggling, just laughing at the like, watching Chris jump up and down and making Death Valley 60. He just got it skipping or, or going Death Valley 60, Death Valley 60. <laughs> and it was, it was hilarious. It's like, cause we don't know how to sample. We're this is not, you know, we're not DJs or, or whatever. And, and it, it made sense that, the, that a band from New York that had some degree of sophistication in their wit would do something like they did. Yeah. And it made sense that we would do a crude, <laughs> crude, just kind of parody it, parody it by doing a crude, uh, uh, <laughs> attempt at wit and, and reference to, a uh, Sonic Youth. But we left it off of the remix and remaster mm-hmm. yep. because it didn't work because you know a few people got it, but most people didn't understand it. They didn't. They didn't. We weren't acquainted with the Sonic Sonic Youth record, or they didn't make the connection. Then we'd have to explain it. They'd say, "Oh, oh, I remember that. Yeah, they do sample the Stooges." <laughs> um, but a lot of people thought it was just tape noise, or they thought it was something. You know, I remember a few engineers thought. Oh, you know, sometimes in studios they use old tapes, they ah, kind of, yeah, you know, yeah. bulk erase them. You know, I thought it was just incompletely erased and just kind of bleed through. And so it was just so, we just thought, okay, fuck it, you know, joke not received, but let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's skip it as a remix. Highbrow inside joke. <laughs> <laughs> it was only highbrow in its, in its, in its, and it's crudeness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nazi driver. I hear a big muff on Nazi driver. I do not remember. Yeah. Um, I, I could be wrong, but it's not a it's not a guitar tone, anyways, that I would associate with Soundgarden. That I, I definitely hear. Well, I'm the only one playing on that song. It could be. I could have just been. You know, if if as I referred to earlier, I was not happy with a lot of the guitar sounds. A lot of the what went to tape were kind of thin and brittle sounding. So I think we're making a, attempts to, uh, that was one of the last songs we recorded. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. But one of the things we wanted to do was, was especially a song like that, like Nazi Driver and Head Injury were both kind of fast single string songs. It's not going to work sounding wiry and dinky and brittle. So we're trying to get some body to it because it was, just lacking in, in the recordings. So it's very likely that we just said, well, we throw a fuzz box on it to give it a, see if we can get some body and distortion out of, out of the tone, out of the sound that way. Um, so it's very likely we would have done that because at, at some point in the recording session, I was listening out in the truck and saying, why does the guitar sound big and warm in there, in, in the room? And then we come out to the truck, it sounds like fucking, I feel like I'm trying to do a Metallica song with an Elvis Costello guitar setting. And this, this is all wrong. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, let's, let's try to give some boost or, or distortion. So that's very likely something we may have done. And it might have been like Chris's Big Muff or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, maybe Drew had one around the studio. Because the song was originally called Fear Biter. It had different lyrics. And, and that song had been, was, 
a long time part of our set. Fear Biter is something we had played at this point three or four years. It was a regular power set. We liked playing it. The the fans loved it. And a Fear Biter was something Chris referred to as a kind of dog, the dog that's scared a dog that's maybe been abused or is nervous and they, and they bark or bite out of, out of fear, not out of aggression, just out of, you know, being scared. And it, the lyrics dynamically worked with the way the song is. If you, you know, guitar wise, the song kind of goes from heavy to windy and wiry back to heavy. And then maybe it's kind of going from low string to high string, the power chords, it's doing a few different things. And the vocals kind of moved with that dynamic. Um, sometime when we were in the studio, Hero started criticizing the lyrics. And, and he may have been right, but it wasn't appropriate, I don't think, at the time. But it kind of, I think it might have bummed Chris out a bit. But Hero saying, is this another goddamn song about dogs? Because... <laughs> I mean, Chris is being honest. He wrote about things that he was acquainted with. He 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 loved this song. He had big dogs. He'd go camping with them, and and he had this awareness of of dog behavior and his relationship with dogs was really profound in his insight. He got into himself, and insight he got into his insight he learned of his other relationships. Remember, he was a young guy. We met him. He's like yeah. eighteen or nineteen or something, and so so. He was kind of, you know, a little bit introverted, a little bit shy. So he'd learn, he'd understand things about just by watching how dogs behave with, the, with each other or with himself. And he kind of, you know, just as a shy guy, he kind of learned to uh, understand some aspects of behavior, you know, and he'd, he'd see it mimic or model in human behavior and think, oh, that's kind of curious. So he'd often sometimes reference, he, he, I think he references dogs and hunted down. I think he references a few other songs. And so Hero brought that up and kind of was in a bad mood and harped on that. And I think Chris said, well, you know, I got some other lyrics in my fit, which is really graceful of him. I, I, I might have been inclined to say, dude, what? Yeah. we've been playing this song for years. Why are you bitching about it now? I mean, everyone, you like it. Everyone likes it. It was kind of weird. So, But Chris went to his notebook and goes, I have these other lyrics, Nazi Driver. And it'll fit rhythmically the way the, the words are paced. I thought, okay. And it did fit rhythmically, but it didn't fit dynamically the way the song, you know, opened up and, 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 and tightened up. And then the way it would go from heavy to wiry, uh, the other lyrics dynamically were sung in that, that with that dynamic in mind, the new ones fit with the meter and, the, you know, but not the dynamic. And but Chris liked the lyrics better. Hero liked the lyrics better. So we recorded the song, and then Chris went ahead and started working on fitting those lyrics in with the uh, with the song. And that was, so in some way, it was, it was definitely the newest lyric on the album, and it was one of the last songs we recorded because of that, because we reworked it. But it's, the problem with it is we played the song maybe a handful of times afterwards, and we retired it. Whereas Nazi Driver, musically, instrumentally, had a nice long history as a Soundgarden song with a different title and a different lyric. And as soon as we changed it, it kind of, you know, we played it on that footage on Costa Tour maybe four times and then put it away. Head Injury. 
like this is I, there's some humor here all over this record really and it's like <laughs> it's not something again that you associate necessarily with Soundgarden but you definitely you know uh, not taking yourself too seriously sometimes and I love that it's definitely it's definitely there on Screaming Life it's definitely there in Ultra Mega okay. it's definitely there in Loud and Love it's the way we engage with each other you know if we want we're we're definitely kind of smart asses, and we tease each other, and we joke around, and we make fun of other other bands, and make fun of the news or whatever. So it's definitely part of us. Um, that kind of it was definitely in, in the early days, especially. It kind of started going away. It's definitely not you know you, you don't really hear it on Super Unknown, or you don't really hear it on Bad Motorfinger. By that point, you know we had lost our friend Andy Wood, and he was very close with Chris. We lost a few other friends by then, and. So there was a different kind of introspection, but in our early days, you know, everything's sunshine and, and, you know, the world's your oyster and everything's opening up, you know, the world of everything's potential. Everything's a world of possibilities. And we're, we're smart asses and, and, uh, we, our songs are often the humorous references were ways that we played with each other, you know, and, and the ways we, 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 uh, built our relationships so it was definitely there in the first three albums and from the eps it's definitely there on fop you know mm -hmm. yep um, so yeah that that makes sense yeah okay incessant mace i i feel like that's another really old one yep yep we, there was a cassette release that daniel house from cz records put out and, and also from skinyard called yeah. pyrrhic victory and we have a four track. He didn't really ask us permission as far as I know, but Jack and Dino play guitar in Daniel's band, Skin Yard. And Jack had recorded a four track version of us doing the Sesame Mace. I think he did it. It may have actually been Stuart Hallerman who recorded it, but somehow Daniel put it out on the Pyrrhic Victory cassette. And it, it was our, it was our most popular song for years. I mean, you know, rock kids and fans and friends would come out and say, they just loved it. I mean, Chris sang it amazingly live. And it was, it was a dynamic arrangement. It was basically two riffs or one riff. And it was arranged dynamically from, from loud to quiet to, you know, trippy to stark. And, and when the band was on, we were all moving the same way, you know, hero and Chris and I, and, or Scott, we just had that dynamic. We'd explode. The song would explode when we all, play together and and when it was on it was on and people would come up and say man i love that song <laughs> and they always get the title wrong what's that song incandescent maze <laughs> oh that's a great song you gotta do that what's that song that kind of sounds like days and confused <laughs> uh, incessant maze yeah uh you should do that dad love that song when are you gonna record it and people loved it it was our most popular song for years Mm. It's just so we'd start playing that. People would go out and get a beer, go out and smoke cigarettes. We'd start the drummer for that song. People would run back in. That was that. Was, and then we'd go record it, and it didn't have the same power and spontaneity that we could elicit live because it was like the band was on. All four of us were just together, just just reading each other. And it's kind of hard to do that in the studio when you're all recording at separate times. Right, yeah. You know, you do the drums and bass and you're overdubbing guitars and vocals. And so we, that was, on Ultra Mega OK, it was probably the sixth or seventh time we'd recorded it. And we thought, oh, fuck it, you know, 
whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, we're not, we're moving on. We're going to make another record in the next year. Let's, 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 we'll live with it. Okay. Um, we don't think it was our best version. We think it's a good version. Definitely. It was good enough that we put it on the record, but it's just one of those things. We, we needed to get it live, you know, in our early days with, with hero in the band and, uh, or maybe even with Scott, you know, drumming and maybe we would have caught it, but, and then we end the record with another cover, the John and Yoko. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a cover. We, we, we call it the the uh, hardcore version or the heavy metal version because me and Chris are in the background talking, or, or and and they're, and they're like, I remember a hero saying, "Shh, the recording, you guys, the recording. Trying to get a minute of silence. Just shut up for a minute." <laughs> It's like, okay, but you don't know that you're recording because because nothing's happening, right? So right. it's like, so we're in the background kind of having a cigarette and chatting. And also, I think I went over, I think intentionally I went over and plugged or unplugged a guitar. And it's, like, and it's like, fine, it'll be the, it'll be the, uh, it'll be the heavy version of One Minute of Silence. There'll be a little <laughs> bit of noise in it. With the, you know, the sub pop, uh, remix. It, how do you feel about this record? Is it? I mean, obviously, it's as good as 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 you can get it. Uh, how's your How's your relationship yeah. with it with it now? Personally, well, it's a lot warmer. It's a lot heavier with uh, Jack's mix. Definitely, um, it was a limit to what we can do. Uh, as Jack pointed out, you know, he said, you know, some of this is just on tape. He goes, we can mix it and make it warmer, make it a little bit bigger. But we just can't change what's on tape. Yeah. He goes, some of the problems kind of arose when it was recorded. He, he, he says, he, if you talk to him about it, he can give you a, a, a good technical insight. But he pointed out that it had something to do with the way the amps were mic'd, the positioning of the mics, which were, you know, I think he, I think he suggested there might have been some uh, uh, clipping or cancel, not, not, not the effect of clipping where, you know, where uh, you get the, the beats from when, uh, hills and troughs are kind of cutting each other out, but that there may have been some, uh, there may have been something with the miking that was, uh, where things may not have been, uh, lining up. Like he, 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 he's explained it to me like four years ago, five years ago, but yeah. So he, he the position of the miking and the kind of mics used, the way things went on tape, he, he said it's, it just wasn't capturing the sound of an electric guitar or of a guitar amp. I know your settings, uh, he would say, and and we were all very cognizant of the fact that what we were hearing in the room in the studio was not what we were hearing in the control room. Right. So there was there was some problem. There's some disconnect between what we're dialing in uh, on the guitars and the amps and what's going to tape. And, and, and Jack uh, strongly informed me of what he believed. You know, he had strong. Uh, uh, insight to what he believed the problem was, and it had to do with miking the yeah. mics used, yeah. the positioning of the mics. So, and we can't change that. So that's that's fucked. But yeah. um, it, it's definitely warmer. And we took out the we took out the uh, little uh, witticisms, which really just were bonus noise and interference. Yeah. We just kind of removed that. So everything else is great. What's next? Are you? Any uh, musical projects you can tell me about that you might be working on? Any Soundgarden archival material? Oh, there's, there's, there's definitely you know some 
some live stuff out there and you know there's there's always anniversary box sets you know like uh, i think louder than love we in 2019 would have been the what 30th anniversary of louder than love but that was kind of put on hiatus for for other for other reasons at this point right yeah down the upside as not has hasn't received the anniversary treatment mm-hmm. but you know there's definitely outtakes live things you know alternate mixes mm-hmm. that we can work with i'm sure matt and i and ben will play together in the future you know yeah. we still we, we we still like our ideas and we still like our company each other's company yeah right on kim thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today i really appreciate it cool all right thanks brad and talk to you soon all right so great to hear from kim and to share those great stories and dude He's got some serious street cred. What can I say, right? Yeah. Part yeah. time well, Christians. Come yeah, on. That was so awesome. Like, A, number one, like, that's a unbelievably underrated EP on Alternative Tentacles. I can't wait to, when we get to that, when we finish this podcast in eight years and do our alternative, <laughs> our alternative, <laughs> what, to alternative do the no, tentacles. What? To one? do the no WTO combo or yeah. part time Christians? I'm just, you know, planting our flag and staking our claim for for alternative tentacles would be amazing when we do that one next you know but you know all the sub pop talk has made me want to do that one too so yeah there's lots of uncharted territory on both of those labels for me frankly yep yeah he's just rattling off bands like sonic youth and the butthole surfers and mud honey and then he just throws in the huns yeah <laughs> <laughs> amazing amazing uh, blackouts history in reverse that is such a good record man yeah, great. Yeah, he mentions that one. Uh, his band Identity Crisis, you can hear their single on YouTube. That's worth checking out. One of my favorite parts is when he's talking about the wow factor they felt when they got that Jealous Again 12-inch EP. Yeah. As being this, like, I know exactly what he what he means. And I think that's one of the reasons why those uh, indie-released punk singles and stuff are so collectible, because you just get that, I think he says, illegitimate. Yeah, feeling. It do, well, it doesn't seem like it should be possible for that thing to exist because you're used to, you know, major label releases and that's it. Yeah. Uh, cool that there was almost two different versions of this on SST. Mm, yeah. I like how he talks about how his Guild guitars are like such a big part of his sound. Yeah, legendary that he didn't play an SG. Hey, let's talk about these tracks, Ryan. History Lesson, Part 2. I should also rattle off this spaceman spiel from the SST catalog as well, Brent. Here we go. I bet it says the words total fucking godhead. I bet. Here, here's <laughs> what Michael Whitaker said. Uh, the debut LP from these Seattle rockers, twisted metal from the magnetic north with wailing vocal gymnastics punctured by razor-edged guitars, served atop hypnotic erotic rhythms. Some mighty good eaten including Flower, All Your Lies, Mood for Trouble, and nine others. SST 201, LP, Cassette, and CD. Mm. Yowza. All right, Ryan, this was released on Halloween, 1988. Yep. On CD, Cassette, and LP. Track one, side one, Flower, written by Chris and Kim. It opens with, you know, the album opens with what we talk about in the interview with Kim blowing on the strings. Just... This is just the quintessential Soundgarden song for me. Oh, yeah. Like, it just sounds like Soundgarden. Yeah. Uh, Greg Prado says in his book, 
It's a one of Soundgarden's all-time great album openers. And Chris is quoted in that book as saying, it's about a girl who becomes a woman and basically invests everything in vanity and then burns out quick. Mm-hmm. Chris's vocals are, of course, amazing. He doesn't really sing like this too often, like he does on this one. He's got a very different kind of rasp to his voice. It almost reminds me of very early white zombie stuff, like Make Them Die Slowly era. I like it. Um, the riff, of course, is unbelievable. I love near the end of the song when Chris just does this amazing scream and the riff just kicks in full on Kevin's mom. Like you can't not headbang when that part comes in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as mentioned in the interview, they did a video with Mike Merrimont. It's kind of a grainy black and white, you know, live footage, definitely shot with a handheld. Footage of them just walking around the street, a woman running through a graveyard. Mark shot music videos to pay to put himself through film school at UCLA uh, with bands like Toad the Wet Sprocket, but this is the one he's most well known for. Uh, it got a lot of rotation on MTV. And as you mentioned, we'll hear this song again on S- episode 231. Uh, and as Jack and Dino mentions in the liner notes to the, uh, the remixed version of this that came out on Sub Pop in 2017, this is the only one he remixed at the time. Like as a test when they mm-hmm. when they were talking about remixing this, yeah. Like could we do, could we do something to the original mix and make it better? Because what's on the tape is on the tape, and they were like, "Yeah, we could do something." Yeah, I should clarify what I just said for people who don't know, because I don't think we've mentioned it. This whole album was remixed in 2017 by Kim Thale and and Jack Endino and re-released on Sub Pop. And the there's some really great liner notes from Kim and and Jack. Yeah, you guys touch on it in the interview. It's called, you know, the corrected version, mm-hmm. and it is night and day. I AB'd them this yeah, week, so did and I. Yeah, it's night and day. Yeah. Um, I still have, you know, this weird sonic soft spot for the way I originally heard Ultra Mega OK, but this isn't one of those ones where they remixed it and they just made it louder. They really expanded the sonic landscape of this record and uh, they, they, you know, used the full potential of what was on tape. It is warmer, it is heavier, it's, it's better. You, oh, it is. But Jack says in the liner notes that their objective was not to ch- change the mix. Like they tried to mix it as close to the original as they could. They just wanted to beef up the drums, beef up the guitars, the sonics basically. Yeah, but it, they did. It's it's when you put it on, it sounds bigger, yeah. but not but not because it's louder. A lot of people do that when they remix or remaster. They just make it louder and they trick you. That's not this. Track two, All Your Lies, written by Chris Hero and Kim. Another Soundgarden classic, kind of a one-two punch on this album, these two songs. Kim says in the Prado book, Hero wrote the chorus part, you know, the All Your Fears Are Lies part, I think is what he means. And then Kim says, but basically I had the main riff, the A part, the verse section, and then the transition bridges, which are all very guitar-y. They're kind of quick, fast guitar runs. Mm -hmm. For me, Kim is definitely the star on this one. Like, he's got not one, but two amazing solos. Enough riffs for probably four songs. Yeah. And as mentioned, there's an earlier version on the Deep Six comp. Yeah. Track three, 665, a.k.a. Scraping Pig. Hail Santa! Yeah, written by Chris and Hero. I got my backwards satanic messages confused. I, I said the Beatles, um, 
but the my sweet satan is the stairway to heaven one supposedly the beatles oh. one is paul is dead paul is dead yeah uh, turn me on dead man this is the this is the one with you can hear the you can hear this backwards on youtube someone wound it backwards you can find it <laughs> Santa, I love you, baby. My Christmas king. Santa is my king. Hail Santa. Pretty cool story from Kim in the interview about kind of the evolution of this track. Mm -hmm. And then we have Chris's Beyond the Wheel. This is just such a classic. It's a top five Soundgarden track for me. Yep. Might even be my favorite song of theirs. Ooh, it's ooh, just, I'm not, uh, I'm it's not just sure it's so my, heavy, man. I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's my favorite, man. Fourth of July. Ooh, ah. I don't know. Chris says in the Prado book, it's about people, small groups of people with lots of money who don't give a shit about me and they don't give a shit about you. For me, the production on this is just great with the, you know, backwards looping, the overdubs Kim is doing, like, you know, the pick scraping. His solo is just total perfection. He says in the in the book, the solo is one of my favorite things I've ever done and one of the best Soundgarden solos. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. Yeah. It, it even has a false ending, this song. Vocally, yeah. the range just puts Chris right there into the absolute upper echelon of rock vocalists. Love that Kim mentions Dio, of course. <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> and, and how, you know, when he first heard Chris do this, he, he maybe didn't have a concept of how difficult that vocal register is. Oh, yeah. Okay. I would love to hear Chris's four-track demo of this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The other thing I loved about this track is it's got some of the most perfect uses of just noise. Yeah. Noise sounds like, I don't know what it is, like guitar jack coming in and out of the guitar or something like that or feedback. Just perfect. Yeah. Well, Kim talked a lot about their use of feedback and this is one where yeah. there's enough space between the notes where they, they could get that. Yeah. Uh, and then the next one is 667, kind of the counterpart to 665. And Dino tells a cool story in that Sub Pop remix version about how he was having trouble with these two. Like he says, you know, the goal was try and get the mix as close to the original as possible. Uh, he says, it became apparent that there were sonic elements that were not on the multi-track tapes. He realized they had added external effects during the mix. Mm -hmm. he, he said, I had a big Eureka moment when he realized that it was likely an effects unit called an H3000 that was used a lot in 80 studios, you know, pre-computer. He figures it was probably used on this track and also on head injury. Uh, I, I kind of thought this is the forward version of 665. You know, you can hear that bass line that Hero's playing. Very well, menacing. Love Hero's tone. Well, maybe some of it is is going in that direction. Yeah. Not all of it, I don't think. So, Brant, when I was thinking of 665 and 667, you know me, I can't help but make an obscure Canadian reference if, if uh, you know, opportunity knocks. Yeah. Um, do you happen to know? I know exactly where you're going with this. <laughs> an excellent record by a Canadian band called 668, Neighbor of the Beast. Yeah, that would be uh, the Montreal band My Dog Popper with an excellent album. Yeah, 668, Neighbor of the Beast. So everyone out there, once you're done listening to your actual satanic records, and then you listen to 665 and 667 on this record, dial up 668, Neighbor of the Beast by My Dog Popper. Oh, man. Limbo Leader? So good. Pusshad's a wanker? Yeah. 
I lost my job to a guy named Gino. (laughs) (laughs) They used to tour with uh, No Means No a lot, too. I love that record, man. Yeah, Yeah. it's amazing. All right, man. Mood for Trouble. Take it away. Uh, Yeah, the next uh, song is another one of Chris's. Uh, It's got Chris on acoustic guitar. Kind of a moody rocker. I love the middle section with Heroes' Geezer Butler-esque bass riffing panning right to left. You know, the kind of chiming guitars and Chris's vocal, it really creates a a cool atmosphere. This song just kind of leaves you feeling melancholy. It it has that feel to it. Very Pacific Northwest, this one. Yeah, interesting though. I made a weird connection in my mind when listening to this track this week and realizing that Matt Cameron played on that Getty Lee record. This has a Rush vibe for me, Mm. this track, actually. Maybe. Maybe. Like the kind of almost galloping. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I can see what you mean. Exactly. It's not it's not overt. Yeah. But I don't know. I made this weird connection in my mind. And and I mean, Hero's got some wicked bass runs in this track. I can hear very, it. Very odd kind of bass um, rhythms in this track, too. It's really weird that the, the bass punctuates kind of on the off note in a really weird way at places in this track. It kind of gets you a little off kilter, but it's yeah. good. Yeah, and then speaking of Hero, we have Circle of Power, written by Hero and Kim. As Kim says in the interview, hardcore in 5-4. This is the only Soundgarden song to feature Hero on lead vocals. Chris plays bass on it. The picking is really fast in the verses. Hero's vocal, just totally unhinged. My favorite part is right before the solo. It's just totally, you know, just boss when Hero goes... Oh, big badass circle of powers coming to get you. <laughs> <laughs> I watched a bunch of footage from this era on YouTube this week, and there's a fair amount of it. There's a gig from Club Lingerie in LA, 1988, where they do this, and you can see, you know, how hard Chris and Kim are downpicking. Hero's doing this wild Jello Biafra-esque pantomime stuff while he's singing. And speaking of Rush, they follow it with a cover of Rush's Working Man. Mm-hmm. And I also stumbled across a band called Bludgeon Hounds doing a cover of this. And and the one comment on the on the <laughs> on the cover is is some guy who says, Fat Bill nailed the vocalist <laughs> nailed the vocals to a T. <laughs> Fat Bill Ryan. Fat Bill. Yeah. The singer of Bludgeonhead <laughs> doing a cover of Circle of Power. Yeah. Well, that's on the to-do list right now. All right. Flipping it over. Uh, He Didn't, written by Chris and Matt. Matt wrote the the music on this one. Chris plays guitar again. Uh, Here's here's what Greg Prado says in in his book. Starts off with some Sonic Youth-esque harmonic feedback squeals before leading into a repetitive chromatic riff. Matt Cameron provides some great drumming throughout the tune, including some tricky, off off-time beat maneuvering during the guitar solo. And it's true. Uh, it's just so odd what he plays, you know. Yeah, it's a really weird, almost jazzy-sounding track. Yeah. Kudos to Chris for putting lyrics to this. And, you know, it, to me, you can tell it was written by a drummer. Mm. Okay, and then we've got Smokestack Lightning, written by Chester Burnett, a.k.a. Howlin' Wolf, one of his most popular and influential songs. He performed this as far back as the 30s, but he recorded it in 1956 for Chess Records. Uh, it's kind of a one-chord uh, hypnotic drone, mm-hmm. 
Howlin' mm -hmm. uh, Wolf plays harmonica on it. You can check that out <laughs> to hear, you know, where Captain Beefheart learned his trade for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kim's pretty clear he would have preferred it, you know, if it hadn't have been on here. Uh, in the Prado book, Chris says, We learned the Howlin' Wolf version. We didn't know it had been covered a lot. And Hero goes, I did, and I told you not to put it on the record. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, though, because, like, there are some vocal references in a track we'll get to in a minute here in Sessant Mace that are reminiscent of some of the vocal tricks that Chris is doing on this track. Mm -hmm. Yep. Chris's guitar, is he's kind of playing this rhythmic wah. Kim mentions they could have put Heretic on here instead. I'll just say, like, I wouldn't change a thing about this album, including the original mix. You know, like, I, I love both mixes. But, yeah. You know, uh, even the gated reverb they put on the drums on this song. Like, but when you listen to that Ultra Mega EP and you read in the liners where, and Dino says, you know, those versions reco were recorded during the same era of Screaming Life, you know, songs like... Uh, Beyond, Head Injury, yeah, Beyond the Wheel, yeah, Incessant Mace. Yeah. Like, can you imagine if... Again, I wouldn't change anything about this, can, but can you imagine if, like, Hunted Down and Nothing to Say and Heretic were on this album instead of, you know, Smoked Stack Lightning and stuff? Mm. Like, it would be a 10 out of 10. Yeah. Chris hits some of the highest notes in his entire discography on this one. It's noteworthy for that for me. And also noteworthy, only on the SST version, uh, for the inclusion of Death Valley 69 tacked onto the end with Chris jumping around and making it skip. Yeah, the Sonic Youth track you can count me as one of the people who never got the joke uh, as kim mentions they were referencing the fact that sonic youth had sampled the stooges the track is uh, society as a whole off of bad moon rising and the stooges song they sample is not right and <laughs> another interesting connection is that that sonic youth album has a song on it called flower you're right okay track three nazi driver written by chris and hero aka fear biter Super interesting when Kim talks about Chris's love for dogs and the various mm -hmm. various dog references on Soundgarden records. The Telephantasm cover. Yep, yeah. Love the staccato riff with Matt playing on the toms. This song really does remind me of Mud Honey, and maybe that's why I thought I heard a Big Muff on it. Oh. Here's Kim in the Prado book. This song is about cutting up Nazis and making stew out of them. We use we use driver because it made it a cool name. It sounds better than Nazi stew, Nazi soup maker, Nazi cut, Nazi cup of soup. Nazi cup of soup would be pretty good though. Yeah. Uh, the next one is head injury written by Chris. A bit of a weird one, but I like it. I like the way it kind of has, you know, the off kilter, somewhat discordant head injury part, and then it shifts to this full on rocker. You know, the with the palm muted part. You you got a kiss for me. It's sweet and frail. You got a fist for me. Sure to impale. Love that part. The the earlier version on the Ultra Mega EP is is really awesome. Good too. Yep. Uh, and then the next song is Incandescent Mace. Incessant Mace. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Written by Chris and Kim. The longest track on the album at six minute twenty two seconds. It's an older one. Uh, you mentioned the Pyrrhic Victory version yep 1986 on cz yep there are several other versions to check out though it's on the live from the artist den album mm -hmm. uh, they open 
that show with it, recorded in 2013. It's on the 25th anniversary edition of Bad Motorfinger, live at the Paramount in Seattle. That version's almost nine minutes long. There's the two extra versions on the Sub Pop remix of this album, a fast and a slow version. Jack in the liner note says, For several years it was Soundgarden's signature Bring Down the House number, but it was always hard to capture it in the studio. The take on Ultra Mega OK is not definitive, and there were several competing earlier versions. In the, mm. in the Prado book, Kim says, By the time it was re- on the record, it was the sixth time we recorded it. We'd always recorded it. We'd never released it. It's like our favorite song, but it's always too long. Or it's four track, or I don't like the four track, let's do an eight track. So it was released on the SST record, and it was our least favorite version. Another time when we recorded it, then we got rid of the drummer. He's talking about Scott Sunquist. So we decided not to use that session. Mm. It's got a doomy Sabbath Vitus thing. You can hear where they, you know, really stretch this out live and play with the dynamics of the song to great effect. I think it's, you know, a fan favorite as far as deep cuts go. Yeah, it has some of the most Iomi esque playing from Kim, I would say. Yeah, for sure. I think this is one like when we were talking about the Grateful Dead a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and some of their kind of, I don't know, uh, when they would break out like Dark Star or something, and it was, yeah, it was like. A very, you know, momentous occasion. I got the the sense that Soundgarden playing incessant mace. Is this this is the one when people would hear it start and they'd come back in. They, yeah. They'd snuff out their dirts. And, yeah. And run back in. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Like when I saw uh, Guns N' Roses on their last tour, their not in this lifetime tour in a massive football stadium, and I'm in line to go to the bathroom, and the guy in front front of me, they start, you know, uh, Civil War. that starts and this guy like pounds his beer pisses in his cup and just whips <laughs> whips the cup on the concord and goes running <laughs> uh, sounds sounds very much like a guns and roses concert mm-hmm. i took my kids to that and you know they were quite young at the time and it was definitely a eye-opening experience for them are they lifelong GNR fans no, though? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then we've got a one minute of silence credited to John Lennon on so on John and Yoko's nineteen sixty nine avant garde album, Unfinished Music Number Two, Life with the Lions. There's just two minutes of nothing. It's called Two Minutes of Silence, which was a tribute apparently to John Cage's four minutes thirty three or four thirty three, which is you know, you can read about that. There's more to the story. You know, I, it's basically him doing four minutes, 33 minutes of silence. Uh, the Soundgarden version isn't actually silent. You can hear studio chatter, someone plugging in a guitar or something. In the Greg Prado, Prado book, Chris says, we were trying real hard to shut up, but Kim couldn't possibly shut up for a whole minute. Kim says, no, it's the heavy metal version. We had the silence switched up to 11. <laughs> uh, as we've mentioned... Ryan, the sub-pop correction, as they call it, tacks on early versions of Head Injury, Beyond the Wheel, the two versions of Incessant Mace, He mm. Didn't, and All Your Lies. If if people out there don't have that version, definitely grab it. Yeah. It's worth yeah, owning it's, both. It's worth owning both, for sure. Yeah. I, I agree. I'm I'm. It's one of those ones where um, I'm going to keep both versions, 
every now and then there is a re-release where they do a remix or a remaster and i don't feel like i need to keep the original like whether it's an elvis costello or an x or even some of the dinosaur jr i kept the dinosaur jr self-titled both of those but not bug and and you're living all over me i kept the merge re-releases and got rid of the original and i'm talking on cd by the way cd um this one, I'm keeping both versions on CD forever. Yeah. Chris referred to it in the Prado book as Ultra Mega All Right. Yeah. You know, when talking about the production. As you mentioned, I listened to both versions multiple times this week. I think they're both spectacular. I can see why the band would have been bummed, but it's not horrible. I mean, we've heard much, much worse on this podcast. On this show with yeah. some of the SST releases? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And a lot of people you know they they are really hard on some of the sst releases and how they're recorded mixed mastered i don't know what it is about ultra mega okay because maybe it's maybe it's because they thought they were on the verge of a major label release yeah or or they knew they were and they just kind of expected more or maybe it's because they they got such good stuff out of jack and dino and steve fisk um but i mean the original mix of Ultra Mega OK holds up as one of the best sounding records in SST's entire catalog. Yeah. Original mix, I'm saying. Original. Yeah. I think so too, yeah. Uh, a few reviews, Ryan. One view, review I read on the site called Immortal Review says, Ultra Mega OK is one of their rawest efforts, full of rock and roll angst and a unique anger. Ultra Mega OK lives off its recklessness there's a certain raucousness that gives the record its charm mm. there's a bunch of reviews of screaming life in this uh press kit i'll just read you a few things where'd it, you get that press kit you can find it online oh yeah yeah there <sighs> there are so many references to led zeppelin and you can just tell the band tired of it is tired of it i think that's just you have to put yourself back to this time like this bands weren't doing this yeah there weren't many references exactly. and I, and here's the thing i i kind of was teasing you during history lesson part one not because i disagree with you but because you made the right point chris's vocals are not operatic but neither were robert plants yeah robert and chris they they hit the high register but it's a soulful yeah. high register singing oh robert, di- robert plants a blues singer you know? Yeah, well, I could make the argument that Chris is a blues singer, too. Yeah. Here's Kim in Rockpool, May 1st, 1988. I don't think the Zeppelin influences one the band agrees with. They're not one of the bands any of us grew up listening to. I've only started to listen to them in the last four years. I think there are plenty of bands from that era that sound similar, and any band that sounds similar to any of those bands is automatically c- compared to Led Zeppelin. And there's kind of a domino effect. One person writes it and the rest follow. Mm. Totally agree with that. Yeah. But as Thale points out, there are other bands far more important to their development, like Butthole Surfers or Scratch Acid. Bauhaus and Chrome are two bands that everyone in Soundgarden listened to at one time. Bauhaus has been a pretty big influence on us since the beginning. The major label interest 
we have predates even screaming life. This is a point that is important to understand. We get asked why we continue to work with the indies. It's because this is the audience we play for. These are the clubs and bands that we're a part of. We want to maintain and establish that audience. We want to remain true to the audience that helped us get what success we have. Then, too, we learn from each level we reach. We really like working with the sub-pop organization, but being a small label, they have their limits. We're doing a single produced by Steve Fisk for Sub Pop, which will be out in May, and then we'll move on to a record for SST. They're a larger outfit and have greater strengths in marketing and distribution, so we'll, we'll learn from that and know what direction the band wants to take in the future. Our immediate goal is to do these records, tour to support them, and at the same time maintain and complete negotiations with a major. But it's very important for people to understand that these records aren't just stepping stones to a major label. So just what level of success is Soundgarden looking for? Kim admits they're not really sure. It would be kind of presumptuous for us to say where we see ourselves going. As we get into new situations, our goals change with growth. Right now, playing to 3,000 people seems fine. Two years down the line, we might want to play stadiums or we might want to do bars and clubs. We are where we should be at any given time, I suppose. We've done each record the way we have because we thought it was appropriate for what where we were at. As we do this, we learn. We let our songs develop. We learn how we want to work. Do we want to put out a record that ships 50,000? We do know that we want to keep growing. At the same time, we've made it a point to be a sincere, idealistic, underground college band. I think they, you know, they were very smart to kind of take this the way they did slow mm -hmm. yeah and speaking of touring we mentioned this in the interview but uh they toured with sylvia Jencoza. yeah that's awesome and their next major tour ryan was first on the bill with faith no more and voivod headlining oh there's a bunch more stuff in here ryan but honestly there's so many led zeppelin albums it's ridiculous so many, but so, so many led zeppelin references yeah but they're talking about a live review of Soundgarden playing at that club Scream in Los Angeles? Yep. Here's the summary. The only reason you haven't heard of Soundgarden before is because this is their first trek out of Seattle. I repeat, the only reason. Merely by playing a few shows in the LA area, they've done more to shake up a trash-weary scene than any local band in ages, and they've certainly given Jane's Addiction something to think about. When the album comes out on SST next month, I'll be the first in line. Ha. Uh, so... I, I've got a reference of that gig as well, too, in Greg Prado's Grunge is Dead. Here's a quote from Duff McKagan. Did, did you see this one? No. Okay. Duff McKagan. I remember hearing a lot about Soundgarden. They finally came down and played L.A. I want to say 88. Maybe they played while we were on tour for Appetite. But the first time I saw them was at The Scream in downtown L.A. That was a rock band. There wasn't many gigs of bands. I wanted to go see at that point. In 88. 88 was a pretty shitty time for music. A lot of White Lion, White Snake, and Warrant. It was terrible. So when I heard Soundgarden was coming down to play, I went and I was really hoping that it would still be the Soundgarden that I remembered and heard such great things about. And they just fucking blew my mind. For some reason, I always look at the drummer. If the drummer is good, the rest will follow. And Matt was just insane. Playing all those different meters, and Kim Thyle, wow, what the fuck is that? And Cornell's voice was fucking Robert Plant on acid. They were menacing, beautiful, musical, the whole thing. Yeah. 
Guns N' Roses took them out on tour as mm-hmm. well. You yeah. know, very similar bands in a, in a sense, you know. They're now both considered classic rock and their influences were a lot of it, you know, Duff's a punk rocker uh, and, you know, Slash is like an Aerosmith fanatic and, you know, all those 70s bands. Definitely mm-hmm. a lot of the same influences, I would say. Mm-hmm. My favorite part of this press kit is the last page. It's from this uh, Don Anderson zine called Backlash. Have you ever seen that? Yep. There's a really good Facebook page uh, to check out. It's got a lot of the the issues. There, there was two. There was Backfire, like both pre and post Backlash, where they were covering bands like Motley Crue and stuff like that. And then just tons of great stuff in these zines from like this era in Seattle. And they have like a best of list for the year. Best bands, Soundgarden. The other bands in the best of list are Young Fresh Fellows, Green River, Chemistry Set, and Skin Yard. The best new band, Ryan, is Coffin Break. Yep. And H Hours listed in here too. That's the Tad Doyle band. Mm-hmm. Best single, My Eye. Do you know that band? They're a CZ band. Yep. Uh, U-Men, Solid Action, Dig It a Hole, Skin Yard, okay. Soundgarden, oh, yeah. Hunted Down, Nothing to Say. And then uh, Thrown Ups, Smiling Panties, 7-inch. <laughs> That's an AMREP one. Yep. Uh, best guitarist, Kim Thiel, Soundgarden. Sex Object of the Year. <laughs> number one is you. Number two is Chris Cornell of Soundgarden. Number three is Landrew. Best vocalist, Chris C- Cornell, uh, Soundgarden. Number two, Mark Arm, Green River, and The Thrown Ups. Pretty cool. The artwork, Ryan. It's kind of got that iconic Lance Mercer shot. Lance Mercer is, you know, shot as many bands, if not more, than uh, Charles Peterson. Mm-hmm. You should check out his lancemercerphotography.com page. He started photographing these bands like so many of these now famous photographers when he was, you know, just a 13-year-old 13, 13 punk rocker. Literally, name a Seattle band. You have you have some of their albums that he shot the cover, cover photo for in your collection for sure. Uh, and he also played bass and sang in uh, the band The Briefs under the punk rock pseudonym Lance Romance. Super interesting that they use that logo a lot on this, that S. Oh yeah, right. The LP label has that kind of on top of a rose. I can guarantee you there are people, you know, with that tattooed. Tattooed, for sure. Yeah. You want to hit me with a thank you list, Ryan? Any any Anybody stand out in there for you? It's a big thank you list in very small writing. But there's SST, Sub Pop, Greg Ginn, Chuck Dukowski, Bruce Pavitt, Jonathan Poneman, George Draculius. George Draculius, he probably... I know the name, right? Who's that? uh, He worked a lot with the the Black Crows. Yeah, that's where I know it. He did like, uh, you know, pretty sure he did Shake Your Moneymaker. I'm not sure why they're thanking him in that. Did he do, maybe he did Louder Than Love. Charles Peterson, Steve Fisk, Daniel House, Reciprocal Recording, Mark Arm, Green River, Mudhoney, Landrew, Malfunction, Skinyard, Screaming Trees, Das Domin, St. Vitus, Faith No More, Drew Canalette, of course. Triple X. That's interesting. I wonder if that's the label. Must be. Hmm. Terry Bozio. That's nice. interesting. <laughs> One of Matt's influences, maybe. Must be. And then it says, and all those folks who paid to get in. Yeah. There is some dead wax on the uh, Sub Pop LP version. 
Side A says, religious man might think we're evil. And side B is, a rational man might think we're religious. Ooh. All right, ballot result. Ballot result. So I could pick a ton, but I'm going to go with beyond the wheel. And the, and I mean, there's a lot, but that's the one on this record for me. Yeah, my faves were Flower, which we'll get another crack at. Exactly. All Your Lies, Beyond the Wheel, Mood for Trouble, Nazi Driver, Head Injury, and Incessant Mace. Those were my favorites, but it's got it. This is the first song, Ryan, on our Volume 11 comp tape. Oh, yeah. So it's got to be Beyond the Wheel. What an opener. Yeah. Holy smokes. Awesome. Thanks to Kim for being on the show and, you know, being so generous with his time. Thanks to podcast pal Jim Ruland for putting me in touch with Kim. Kim's nice. in Jim's book, Ryan, Corporate Rock Sucks and the rise and fall of SST Records, which comes out on April 12th. We're fortunate enough to have reader copies of it, which Jim sent to us. Everyone is just going to shit when they see this book. Oh, man, it's good. Yeah, I can't wait to read it again. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. I'm serious. I'm serious. All right. Woo. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, it's time for something completely different. It's SST 202, the Brian Ritchie sonic temple and court of babylon lp can't wait hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show our blog is mojackpod.com please check it out for some exclusive content if you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.